It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 2006 film, The Prestige. see this in the cinema when it came out oh gosh i wish i did no uh me too trying to think what was the first nolan movie i saw in the, in the theater i think it was the dark knight to be honest me too <laughs> um because all the others i heard about them after the fact or came to them late uh and like i honestly now i can't even remember what did i see first Batman Begins or Memento. I'm not 100% sure which one I saw first. Um, I know I, I saw Begins first, and then I sought out Memento because I'd heard like such great things about that one. When I found that they were the same director, I was like, ooh. I think I had the same trajectory. I just can't remember for sure at this time. But I, I, I may have told you before... Um, Though, when Batman Begins came out, I remember hearing, oh, there's going to be a new Batman movie. And all I was thinking was, not interested, not interested. I'll let that come out, and whatever happens, happens. And if people say good things, I'll rent it later. That was basically my position. Um, And it came out, and I just ignored it willfully. Um, And then it it was out. I remember when it came out on on DVD. Um, I don't even think it was blu-ray yet no it's dvd i think and i remember i just yeah. looked at the packaging i saw it at the store i was like oh batman begins is out and i remember just looking at the packaging on the dvd and the font and i was like man that just it looks like a straight to video movie um so i didn't even pick it up right away yet because i just i hadn't read anything i just assumed this is going to be like a more modest budget they're probably gonna you know I was expecting something like I don't know, like Electra or something. The movie, like like I was I was expecting like you know like a comic book movie with a modest budget or something. Um, I didn't. I had no idea, and, and then eventually I did get it. And God, I was like, wow. that was one of the most stunning things that ever happened to me. <laughs> I was I was such a Batman fan. I was watching like all the uh, like behind the scenes featurettes they would play on TV. And Christopher Nolan was all over those talking about how he's looked at what the landscape of like superhero stuff is right now and he wanted to do something completely different. Wanted to like get rid of the CGI, make it like a real grounded story. And so I was so hyped. The minute it hit HBO I was I was there. And I probably watched it like ten times, like just immediately. 
Yeah, and I saw The Dark Knight eight times in the theater, too. I think that's the only time I've ever done that. So I was on a massive Nolan trainer on that time. Wow. And then what happened? What happened? Uh, just seeing more movies. That's... that's. <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with seeing more movies, but... But... Uh, that was just the beginning of my love affair with Nolan. I never knew... Never thought that he would take over and dominate... Like as my favorite director essentially well it's kubrick first but if we talk about contemporary times anyway prestige so obviously you brought this to the table not me i want to make that clear yep um so why was did it have something to do with us watching insomnia not too long ago or what compelled you and why this one well before we discussed insomnia we went off in, in something i don't remember what because i haven't edited it yet oh yes Okay. We went on like this long Nolan discussion for ages. Yes, we did. And I remember saying that um, Nolan's two best works were Inception and The Prestige. But the more I thought about it, I was, I was kind of wondering, do I like Interstellar more than The Prestige? And it had been a couple years since I'd seen it, I think 2017. And so I decided just at, at random, I'll, I'll just put it in and, and see what I think. And, yeah, after watching it, I just thought it'd make for a good discussion, because I hadn't seen it for years, and... The Prestige, you hadn't seen it for years. Yeah, for years. Okay. And, yeah, my opinions definitely were a little altered, so... My opinion's altered, too, but it's also solidified things I thought before, amplified other things, um, and as it pertains to that discussion that we had... I think this is the perfect Nolan film to watch post that discussion as it pertains to that Interesting. discussion. I didn't realize how much so until I rewatched it myself recently. Uh, in, in what way? What way? Because one of the biggest things that perturbed me in that prior conversation was this idea of that we were kind of debating on was was or is Nolan a more film film mainstream filmmaker blockbuster maker um or is he or or what's the ratio between him being a blockbuster filmmaker and him being an artur more art house filmmaker and what's the balance and you were leaning much more towards blockbuster mainstream and I, I, there, he does have that. There's no doubt. But I, I think, and I thought this before watching the Prestige, and I was more solidified in my thinking. I, okay, so after we had the discussion, I have been watching a couple more Kubrick movies, or rewatching, of course, um, like one just for myself and one for another podcast. Um, and when I was watching and thinking about those Kubrick movies. I just kept thinking, I think Nolan is so much, at wherever Kubrick is on the spectrum of filmmaking, um, I, I think Nolan is the closest to that spectrum in our contemporary times right now. And oh. Even though, I'm not saying Nolan makes Kubrick mo Kubrickian movies, well he does, but I'm not saying that he's like some clone or carbon copy, not at all, I'm not saying that. But what? But in in terms of the balance between mainstream and our tour, our house, 
That's what I mean. In terms of that balance or where they, they land on that spectrum, I think they land extremely close to the same place on that spectrum. That's on. And I was thinking that when I was watching those Kubrick movies. And then when I watched The Prestige recently, then it just like pushed me over the top to like confirming my own hypothesis uh, or confirming my own bias that what I just said, that he and Kubrick inhabit this rare space, um, even though their movies are unique to oh. each filmmaker. Well, I've, I definitely got some, some disagreements there. But <laughs> well, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I, I could I could probably name some filmmakers I think are closer to Kubrick, but yeah, j- just focusing on this film. Um, in in but, what way did you feel like that? No, you can tell me. About, oh, you can or cannot tell me about those filmmakers later, whoever you think they are. But sure. I'm again, I'm speaking very specifically here in specific terms, meaning such a I don't know if balance is the right word but such equal parts of mainstream blockbuster and auteur art house combined like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Uh, I would love to hear who those directors are who combine both of those elements in such high proportions, but okay. Do you mean into one feature or just in their overall catalog? Broadly, broadly, if you look at their, their canvas of work. Well, I would I would jump over to I think we even discussed him previously, uh, Denis Villeneuve. He I think has a bit of a better balance. He would be my runner up, and I'll tell you why. Because he, oh, as far as I'm aware, I'd have to get the statue in front of me. While he has made some very well liked mainstream like movies, uh, well, at least two come mm-hmm. to my mind off the top. Even though he has those. That's that that does not tell the story of his career of making films. He has like a couple mm-hmm. standouts in that kind of way. Um, and also, even though he does have those standouts, they're not household name titles the way Nolan andor Kubrick films are. Um, yes. So that's why I, I, I being the way I think it's a very good runner up in my opinion. He's definitely in the conversation. But he's got a ways to yeah. go, and it's it's still early days in his career. Even though him and Nolan have been working in, I think, basically the, the exact same time period. Uh, but yeah, his movies were much more indie for longer than Nolan's were. So. Yes, and I, again, I don't know how he Nolan jumped so quick. Well, again, it was Memento, but yes, but it is phenomenal. It is like I because when I started learning more about him, and I, was, I, I still like how. Did they trust this guy for Batman Begins? I I mean yeah, um, uh, what do you call it? Insomnia is it's a great it's a, it's a well done movie, but you wouldn't expect the person who made Insomnia to then present Batman Begins. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing because they do that all the time these days. Yes, they do. I don't do. know if that was the beginning. I don't know if they were just that was like their trial run and it turned out so great they just kept doing it it has happened but but it's also failed many times as well yes absolutely where they they tried to do the same thing with other interesting filmmakers how about the prestige i feel like we're definitely (laughs) kind of talking around it here it's my way (laughs) but just for my uh when i first saw it 
I this was one of the later Nolan movies that I watched. I think I saw this maybe like 2014, 2015, so fairly recently. Yes, that is quite late. And I've only gone back to it. I've only gone back to it. Uh, this was my third viewing, so even though I really loved it on that first viewing, for whatever reason, it's not been one that I return to super often. Uh, is it one that you watch or pull off the shelf frequently, or? Yes, let me give you my version of that. Uh, so, you know, I had seen Batman Begins. And I was like, oh, he has this movie called The Prestige coming out. All right, I'll watch it. Uh, and I watched it and rented it when it came out. And, oh, that's the other thing. Actually, I don't know if I knew right off the bat it was a Nolan movie. Because I remember at the time hearing about The Illusionist mm-hmm. and The Prestige. And, I, you know, Hollywood does that every few years. They always do that. Where they have two movies that seem so similar come out in the same year. And I thought, oh, great, another one of these. Um, and I don't remember, I can't remember for sure now. I may have seen The Illusionist. I may have rented that one first. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is what it is. Nothing memorable. Um, And I I wasn't a big fan of Norton in those days at all either. Um, Oh, really? I wasn't. Uh, And so I was like, okay. And I was like, I don't know if I'll watch the other magic movie. Um, (laughs) And then I remember I did see it. And again, now I'm not so sure if I knew it was Nolan going in. But I remember thinking, okay, this this is... a lot better than the illusionists uh, a lot more going on and you know obviously this has to be a spoiler cast uh on this particular movie uh, otherwise i don't know yeah. how to talk about it um yeah <laughs> so the way nolan tries to deceive you and trick you and and whatnot with the big reveals in the movie compl- i completely fell for like all of it and now Oh, wow. When I was watching it the first time, I was not studying it, you know, with a microscope. I wasn't, you know, locking my vision in and looking for every little th- I wasn't doing any of that. I was just watching it as a casual viewer. And I never saw the end coming at all. I, I was completely in the way he intended for the audience to be in and deceived in everything. And I just remember thinking, wow, wow. Now, do you mean in terms of the Borden slash Fallon reveal? Or do you mean in terms of the... Absolutely. Uh... All the reveals. All the reveals, pretty much. Um, I mean, I absolutely did not see the twin thing coming. Um, I did not notice that um, that, that, that was uh, Christian Bale or Borden in disguise. Not at all the first time. Completely got me. Um... And then I also remember my reactions to the the reveal of the Tesla machine and how it works and not quite sure what to think about all that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because... And I know many people have got hung up on that who have watched this movie or reviewed it on YouTube or wherever. Oh. Like, like it's, interesting. it's it's not magic. Like, it's, it's almost like a... I don't know if, if I'm misusing the term but it's almost like a deus ex machina machine in a way i was gonna say it's like the transporter in star trek because they don't break down the original copy they just copy it and transport it no, no 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 but no 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 but you can take that because that takes place in the far future 
So you can just mm-hmm. accept that, just like you can accept hyperdrive in Star Wars or whatever, whatever in sci-fi. But to introduce something like that in something that's like not even just contemporary times, but um, a period piece, and then so that that was something I had to wrap my head around, you know, just because because how else does the story work without this completely made-up thing that? Like, how does that even work? You know what I mean? I mean, with transporters, you could make up that there's some technology that, I don't know, encodes you digitally and then sends you somewhere else. But this is literally just electrical sparks. (laughs) And how... Uh, That's... It's just a sci-fi conceit. I mean, Tesla, there's all those rumors about him that he was, like, this genius ahead of his time. I'm sure most of it's bunk. (laughs) I'm all about that. I'm all for it. But, I mean, you just... So there's a certain suspension of disbelief. And you just have to grapple with that on your own as an individual movie watcher. So, okay, this is a thing, I guess. We just go with it. Like I said, that's a lot easier to do in, in future or near-future sci-fi. It's something mm-hmm. else. Uh, oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't realize that people had issues with the movie because of that. I mean, that just seems... Well, like because, because if you're just trying to figure it out, if you look at this movie like a mystery... And you're trying to work it out in real time on your first viewing. And how can you account for things that don't exist in the world? You know what I mean? Like, if you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out the trick. Okay, I understand how duplicate works. I understand how a trapdoor works. I get it. I get it. But then <laughs> once someone tells you, whoa, we're, we can literally transport someone. Well, whoa, okay. Well, then, <laughs> yeah, okay. Why am I even trying to focus on this? Because if you can do that, then, then anything could be possible. In this in this story here's a question for you did the uh reveal at the end that he was copying himself did that get you because i feel like nolan he kind of pulls like the trick from psycho where they way over explain at the end where they think the audience is like really stupid like you got it by that point that he was transporting himself like when he reveals it to board oh no, no no i yeah i mean yes i understood yes i mean from the time he was setting up the trick and everything i mean like you know rehearsing mm-hmm. it or whatever Yes, I understood. I understood that, and and it was. I thought it was a great reveal. Um, no, that wasn't like. No, that wasn't like. Oh my god, I wasn't expecting that. No, no, no. I I was completely on board for that. Sure. But I do remember still though with the reveal and seeing it for the first time. I just remember I was I was left with that thought for quite some time, just thinking about, you know, um, the idea of basically willfully drowning yourself over and over again and I, I remember just meditating on that for quite some time after watching the movie interesting and, and it's funny because why do you even care that he sh- Angier or whatever is shot and killed at the end when he'd already died a long time ago in the movie well that's yeah that's definitely a debate at what point do uh at what point did he actually die or is the copies still him I mean I, I think Ultimately, the copies are still him. I would. I don't. I there. There are some interesting debates out there, and I did come across an interesting theory on YouTube that is just a theory, um, that is unique. But just taken as is in the movie, I would venture to say that the original who's who stands on in the beam or whatever is the original and the copy is created 
out of I don't know what or where, but they are the copy. So in other words, no, not in other words. But if the copy, if the copy is identical in terms of his like DNA, in terms of his way of thinking, everything, I mean, isn't it essentially the same? Does it really matter? Uh, I think it does matter. Um, <laughs> because it's still a copy, even if it's an identical copy, including memories and thoughts and everything. Uh, it's still a copy. It's still not the original. Um, but when you when you get down to it, I mean, the you that existed five years ago has been long dead compared to the you that exists now because all your cells have been replaced. So are you really the same you from five years ago? I mean, you can go down that route. I'm not gonna. Hole. I'm not. I'm not gonna. No, I'm not gonna <laughs> stuck in that at all because exactly. That's that's kind of my point. No, 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 no. Because you, no, 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 no. That's a separate conversation. But that I would say no. You're still the same person because. <laughs> it's still the same organs. It's still the same heart. I don't have a new heart now. You know, it's not like my infant heart no longer exists, and now I have a brand new heart. That's not the way it works. So, I don't, but the I, other one's not really brand new because it'd be all the same. Everything that's been there, it's identical. I understand, but uh, now I think that I think the, the debate is much more interesting if you're talking about the Star Trek transporter. Then I think this type of yes. debate is much more interesting. Agreed. But. Because in that situation, you start with one and you end with one. But in this situation, the original is still the original. The original who steps on the, the platform is the original who's existed on this planet X amount of years up to today. They copy, even though it's undis undiscernible, indiscernible from the original, still, though, has only existed on the planet for X amount of minutes or days. So that's still the difference between the original and the copy, even if they're virtually identical in every way, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but again, I say even though they're perfect copies, seemingly, um, the original is the original, yeah. and the original Angier died the first time he he did the trick with the with the water tank or whatever. Well, I mean, if I could even, if I wanted to bullshit, go back that the real Angier really died when his wife died, and he became just a creature of vengeance after that so <laughs> okay if you want to okay you're, you're that's fine if you want to say that but that's just a different conversation but i mean ultimately it doesn't matter because the copy had the same motivation and i mean it really doesn't make much of a difference in terms of the plot or the the character arc yeah yeah you know yes but speaking of that change of angier changing like his character arc throughout the story in the movie. Um, what's interesting is that Borden has an opposite trajectory. Um, oh, Borden gets complicated because he's def definitely two, not only two brothers, but two mm -hmm. very different personalities. Um, and I watched a lot of YouTube videos after I watched The Prestige the other day. And I learned there's a lot more that people um, fixate on and dissect when it comes to this movie much more than I thought. Um, but Angier's character arc goes more from a, star, a, a basically good character um, who has some types of virtues and, and morals and ideas and good intentions in the beginning and morphs into this monster character and and Borden's more complicated because like I said yep. he's two different people 
and and there's a version there's one of the brothers who also gets lost in his obsession like Angier over the course of the movie but there's the other brother who kind of mellows and 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 starts off not so noble well both as, as a pair don't start off so normal at the beginning but kind of soften up and Borden becomes more humanized as the as the story progresses where Angier goes the opposite direction at the same time and it's so funny because well when I think about it because it's so tenant they're the same character but one's starting at one end going in reverse and one's at the other end going in the opposite direction and as, at a certain point halfway in the movie they're almost at the same place mm-hmm. do you understand what I'm saying I kind of do it's so tenant it's so because because Borden starts off as the questionable uh, inhuman like personality that's how he is mm-hmm. early in the movie and Angier's the opposite and then fast forward to the end of the movie and Borden has grown to become the more well, the, the, the Borden who lives um, grows into the more human grounded and he leaves the obsession behind whereas Angier is a full obsession at the end you see what I'm saying the, they're direct mirrors and over the course of the story it's just like Tenet they're at opposite ends. It's what do they call it in Tenant? The uh, they call it like the pincer formation or something. Oh, I haven't seen it since the theater, so it's a little foggy in my brain. Well, you had the you had the two teams coming at the same situation from both ends. So when one team gets to the end of their journey, the other team's at the beginning, and when the other, that team gets to the end, the other team's at the beginning. That's exactly what's happening between Borden and Angier over the entire course of this movie. They start at opposite ends. So in other words, if you watch the movie in reverse, or if you follow the story in reverse order, the prestige, then Borden starts off as the more humanistic character who becomes the more obsessive at the end, and Angier begins as the obsessive who becomes the more humanistic at the end. Interesting. If you watch the movie backwards. Yeah, and I was going to, since you mentioned the whole backwards thing, I was going to mention the fact that Nolan, once again, is kind of doing things in a big kind of clustered order. And so we do almost start at the end with the beginning of this movie. Oh, absolutely. This may be the most clustered movie he's ever done as far as jumping around time streams. I, I think it might be by far of all his yeah, movies. Now that you mention it, yeah, because it's throughout. I mean, there's like Batman Begins. It just stops at a certain point doing that. This movie, all the way up to the end, it's constantly just jumping around. So Yes. And, and some YouTube reviewer remarked he counted, or at least he found the count, and it was something in the ballpark. I don't remember the exact number, but he said something like there is like 147 oh. jumps in time in this movie as, as you watch it. And what's remarkable about it is not that it, just that it's such a high number, but that you never get lost. Maybe at the beginning you're lost, but once you get past the very beginning. You always know where you are in time. You know where you're at, even though it constantly. Yeah. And I think that's remarkable that it jumps that much, and you still know where you are. Yeah, wonderful command of storytelling. That's again one of the reasons I elevated this one so high on my initial uh, to be honest. Okay, I was, spoiler on some of my feelings, final feelings on this movie, but I think on paper, like if you look at the script and you read it. And I'm not just talking about the dialogue, but I mean the way the story unfolds in the script. 
I think this may be the most perfect or beautiful Nolan film on paper. Um, not necessarily do I feel that way like on film or final product or final show, but on paper I think this might be the most exquisite like if this on paper was the equivalent of like a blueprint of a masterful timepiece, like an old timey timepiece with all the gears and knobs and springs. Mm, I see what you're saying. And you had a blueprint of that. Yep. Um, it, I think this screenplay may be the most beautiful screenplay on paper of any Nolan film. So I'll give it that. I could definitely see that. Yep. Yes. But what I wanted to say, because you brought up the opening scene. There's something so interesting. I mean, the very opening shot. Mm. And, you know, it's it's kind of a fun game that I need to do one day, which is watch all the opening shots of every Nolan movie and then watch all the closing shots of every Nolan movie. That's <laughs> a fun game. But, but okay, so in the beginning, um, I don't know what to call him. Uh, um, Michael Caine. I can't even remember his character's name. Cutter. Cutter? Yeah. So at the very beginning, he's explaining the oh crap, what is it called? The pledge, uh, the pledge, the turn, and yeah. the prestige, right? And he talks about how the pledge, you know, it's obviously the beginning. And you see something ordinary, and the turn is where the unexpected happens, and then the prestige is the reveal, ta-da, <laughs> right? And what's so interesting, and this is not, I didn't do this on my own, but. What's interesting at the very opening shot. Okay, what's the very first opening shot? It's all the top hats, right? Okay. So what's interesting about that shot is that single shot and then the words the prestige come on top of it, which I'm told is not a common thing for Nolan to do is to present like his title card at the beginning like that. But anyway, no. What's interesting about that that opening image is that that opening image is actually all three things at the same time. It is the pledge, and it is the turn, and it is the prestige all at the same time. Do you know how? How? I, I only thought it was the prestige. I thought he was just almost giving it away right at the start, but <laughs> go ahead. That's true. That is true. But it's all three. Because what is the pledge? The pledge is the opening. It's the beginning. It's the thing that's the ordinary thing that you're just looking at, and you don't oh. like, okay. Okay. So it's just a shot of a bunch of top hats in a forest. There it is. That's the pledge. Very. It's the beginning, and it's perfectly ordinary. There's nothing Somewhat. special about it. Somewhat. Huh? Because you wouldn't normally see that many hats in the middle of a forest. True. True. But you wouldn't be like, what is this madness? Yeah. It's like, no. It just is what it is. Now, the prestige is pretty obvious because... Um, well, you got the title card, but also the hat, that's the prestige, because that's like the reveal, that's like the trick. That's like, here it is, see? You know, the, it's the transported man, is what it is. So it's the prestige, that's pretty obvious, right? The reason it's the turn is because chronologically, where that scene happens again and where it takes place in the story or the narrative is more towards the middle of the movie. Oh, boy. And when you get to that part in the movie with the cat, that's the turn of the movie. Because before that, everything preceding it was all pledge. Because it's still ordinary happenings and goings on. 
when you get to the reveal of the hats and the cat, that's the turn. Like, holy shit, what is going on? And then you get the prestige at the end of the movie, because then you got to get the ta-da, this is how it... So you see, the opening shot is all three at the same time. Well, a little bit of a reach, because you need that later context. I don't think there's any reach. Well, in, in terms of a first viewing, I mean, you need that later context. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> but you can't argue that it's, it is literally the opening and pretty ordinary. You can't really argue that it's not the turn in the overall whole movie. And then it's also the prestige, as you said at the beginning. Sure. Yeah, and, and since I just mentioned that, I'll actually say this. You said you were pretty, um, you know, surprised by your first viewing, but me, this is one of the last Nolan movies that I watched. I think I watched this. Yeah, see. Very shortly after Interstellar. And so I, I caught on very quickly what was happening in both regards. See, see, you, see, we saw it in completely <laughs> different contexts. Yes. Because I still didn't really know who Nolan was. I didn't, you know, I, I just went into it like a regular movie. If I had, if this would have been the last one. See, that's what happened to me with, um, that's what happened to me with uh, Barry, Barry Lyndon with Kubrick. Because that was the very last Kubrick movie I ever watched of his entire filmography. Mm -hmm. And just having the weight of that on my shoulders and thinking, all right, here we go, Barry Lyndon. And I'm having, you know, I'm in full Kubrick mode. You know, everything means something. You know, what does this shot mean? Why is the camera lingering? So, you know, so that heavily affected my first viewing of Barry Lyndon. It actually made it seem kind of dull upon my first viewing because I was like, huh, this doesn't feel... I mean, yeah, there's some things about it that feel Kubrickian, but not... But upon further viewing, though, oh, trust me, my opinion changed so much. There you go. Barry Lyndon. <laughs> but anyway. Great one. <laughs> but <laughs> Back to Prestige, though. Um, what else do you want to talk about? There's a lot more to still talk about. Okay, so you saw everything coming. Okay, mm -hmm. so so of course that's what it was like the second time I watched it and beyond. Um, however, that being said, okay, it had been a number of years since the last time I watched this movie all the way through. I don't know exactly how many, maybe eight years, maybe ten years, mm -hmm. I don't know, since I watched it all the way through. Um... So there was a lot of things I picked up on this time that I did not before. Um, and also, and I was thinking about this, but then some other YouTube YouTubers did the work for me. I'm not a YouTuber, but YouTubers did the work for me, which was, I mean, people have gone to the extent of tracking and chronicling exactly which twin is in every scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's something interesting, too, if you were to edit this movie and just watch the one twin's life in, you know, spliced together versus the other twin's life spliced together, that would be another interesting experiment because you would see how different they really are. Yeah, and I think it plays fairly obvious, and that's actually one of the big things that gave it away, especially with the uh, wife character. Uh, was it mm -hmm. Rebecca, Rebecca Hall? Yes, her? I think so. Yeah, we just recently saw her in uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. I completely forgot yeah, that she was in this. So, <laughs> it's a nice surprise seeing her. Well, that's the funny thing about this movie. Before I rewatched it, probably the only actors I remembered for sure were the two leads, Michael Caine and David Bowie. Like, me those too. for sure. And then when I rewatched it... Andy Serkis. I mean, oh, no. But for me, I was like, oh, shit. Andy Serkis is in this. And, I, and, and before, I was like... Before I started watching it recently, I was like, 
Wait, does this have Scarlett Johansson or like I wasn't sure. Like I'm not sure if she's in the movie. Um, and then Rebecca Hall completely forgot about. Um, yeah, just completely forgot. And even um, um, oh, from Doctor Who. Um, oh. Um, he played the old guy in the uh, the season premiere of series six. Remember the Nixon episode? Oh, like the old version of. Um... Yes. Yes. Oh, who is he in this? That's interesting. He was. He was. I think he was the mayor, who had given him permission to do the new version of the trick where the bird didn't get killed, and oh. then, I think when the lady's finger got broken, he was pissed off. He's like, "You're out of. You're done. You're done. No, you're done." That was him. I knew I recognized that guy's voice, but I just couldn't place what I knew him from. I thought it was some animated thing, but... <laughs> that was him. Um, there was a real-life famous magician, I don't know his name, who featured a bit in the movie. Oh. Um, he was the magician that Borden and Angier both kind of, like, understudied with in the beginning. He was the magician on stage when Angier's wife drowned, but he is one of the most oh. famous sleight-of-hand magicians and he's Wait, since passed now but, Gupta? but he was a legend or, gupta from <laughs> from uh what's it oh it was one of the pierce brosnan bond films he was in i think it was tomorrow never dies could be <laughs> uh, he did some acting he did some acting and other things but but his main vocation was being a professional magician sign a hand artist and oh, he cool. was more well known for that than anything yeah, the minute I saw him, I was like, hey, it's Gupta, because I always thought it was so bizarre that they gave that character that name in Bond, because I was like, that name does not fit the, the guy. Uh, anyway. And, and I think he was also the magic consultant, quote-unquote, for the movie, hmm. even though uh, most people remark that there's, there's actually not that much real magic in this whole movie. Uh, I mean, it's just variations of, like, a couple tricks, and yeah. it's not really... And it feels like tricks that everyone already knew, like the bird trick. Yes, I mean, yes. I feel like everyone knew that one. And they explain, like, the uh, the one with the woman in the uh, the water tank. I feel like everyone knows that one, too. But Yes, one of those things I didn't pick up on until watching it recently was how there's this ongoing thing throughout the story where, um, where Borden doesn't know did he tie the right knot or not? Mm, yes. I say it like that. But um, that was just one of those through lines that I just, it was neither here nor there, never crossed my mind before. But when I watched it now, you see how he's struggling with that and, and how he literally doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And he's also, quote unquote, the good twin, the good brother out of the pair. And, and that that prick that takes on a whole new life of its own like when you start separating the two brothers the two twins and and all the suffering the one goes through largely because of his brother mm -hmm. um, throughout the whole darn movie <laughs> yeah I started to wonder if Nolan was playing with like let's make um, these two characters who are obsessed with it like just outdoing the other one it's a movie about obsession and ambition well, let's have one it of them is. be like a fully fledged character but in two parts and then mm -hmm. one who's just kind of I mean 
the Hugh Jackman character. This is like you talking about Virgin Spring all over again. I know. I th- I was trying to figure out if that's what he was. What, what did we dub that character? What did we dub that character? Oh, I I mean I, I think I called him a composite character. But I'm not sure what we uh. Yeah, the composite man or something. Yeah, I wondered if Nolan was doing something like that, but it never really never really came out. And ultimately, the good twin even gets you know back to revenge again at the, by the very end so it kind of doesn't matter if he really was trying to say anything there or, so but <laughs> okay there's but there's two more things i want to say and i don't know which one to go with because i don't want to go with one and forget the other sure you could say both i mean you could just type it down. i'll say one real quick and then i'll get back on the other one sure uh another thing i had no idea until i researched for this podcast i had no idea that this Nolan film was based upon a pre-existing novel. Mm. Because my whole Nolan fan career, I've always been told and always read that it was just Insomnia was like his only work. Obviously, he did not invent Batman. I get it. But I'm saying, um, I thought Insomnia was the only thing that he really adapted. I thought all the other stories, even the Batman stuff, was stuff that he had created, even if he, even if he drew from sources. Mm. you know but largely it was his tale that him and or his brother wrote i thought that's how all the nolan films were aside from insomnia not so not so this one is very based on an existing novel that came out in the mid 90s um that i guess was popular at the time when it came out and although yes he does make some changes of course and nolanizes it just like he did insomnia um but it's still largely um, like the original story is there in the original novel. Um, there's still quite a lot of it that, that carries over into the movie version. Um, had no idea that was a thing. But the another thing I glossed over and never realized until this viewing was that Angier's character was a nobleman from the very beginning and came from a rich background. I had no idea. Because I just wasn't ever paying attention. I didn't realize that either, even now. <laughs> yes. If you go back, it's there. It's right there in the movie. They're not really hiding it if you just pay attention to the dialogue um, in the beginning of, of his story. Um, he came from a noble family. He came from a rich family, a rich upbringing. But, and here's the thing, because you always think of Borden as being the one who is so devoted to the double life. You think of him as that one from like, you know, the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But actually, Angier has a double life from the very beginning of his own, which is he comes from a rich family, but he changed his name um, to not carry the surname uh, that he was born with, which is the character who he is at the end. But that's his actual self. See, he's doing that whole Quentin Tarantino Superman thing, which is the version of Angier you see is actually the disguise at the beginning because he voluntarily lives this low-level life and abandons his surname um he says because because you know it's so shameful for him to be a magician like his family oh that's right whatever they would never approve and he didn't want to bring shame to his family so he assumes this whole different persona he's living a whole different life just so he can be a magician and be a performer um, and I never picked up on that, that the person who he is at the end of the movie when he's going to take care of the girl, and, and it's so dumb because 
because I was wondering this in previous viewings, including when I just watched it recently. Like, I, w I was like, how the hell does he go to Colorado for a whole year, and how does he fund Tesla? I was like, he's just a, you know, yeah, he's a popular performer in London, but he, I couldn't, like, how could he afford that? It's because he's using the family fortune. Interesting. Duh! <laughs> like, I don't know why... <laughs> <laughs> it just never clicked. This is so removed from my reality. I was like, maybe he made millions being the top performer in London. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was exactly. I was trying to wrap my head around that, and then I was like, no, he comes from a noble. He's noble born. Holy crap! And then also, it was lost on me that Borden was an orphan and lived a hor. It's in the movie. I didn't ever realize he was an orphan and lived horribly on the streets. Mm -hmm. prior to where we meet up with him in the movie. So that's the other interesting dynamic that's going on between Angier, uh, one of many, uh, when you compare Angier to Borden. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's living this whole fake life the whole darn time. That is interesting. It's again, because a lot of this movie feels like things that Nolan would do in other projects, although what I'm going to reference came before this. It's kind of like Bruce Wayne going on the run pretending to be like a criminal robbing his own banks or robbing his own uh, like facilities and stuff like that yeah and i i even thought there was a little nod i think in the dialogue um to batman begins in this movie um at one point when angier's introducing i think his version of the transported man the first time and he says something to the effect of you know this is a magic that came from the orient um, <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> he said he said certain um wise men in the himalayan mountains or something like that oh oh that's funny yeah and yeah. i'm i'm surprised you of all people uh haven't mentioned this so far what's that so much of this movie is just nolan once again discussing filmmaking and, and storytelling oh a bajillion bajillion percent um i feel that is so much this movie and inception and yeah. that was my big rant on inception back when I podcasted on it in 2009. Well, I remember. That was my humongous <laughs> rant. Oh, thank you. But this one is an even more interesting version of that uh, as mm. it comes to filmmaking um, because it gets into that big argument slash debate that we were talking about earlier. Um, you're absolutely right because when you look at that whole pledge turn prestige thing and wowing the audience or getting that reaction, okay, that's absolutely a metaphor for filmmaking and filmmakers, without a doubt. Um, but furthermore, so you got these two guys, well, we'll just call them two, even though it's three guys. <laughs> you got Borden and Angier, and they're coming at the art or whatever from different angles. Um, Borden is more interested in the craft he even says in the movie that he wants to perform tricks that amaze other magicians. Yep. Um, he doesn't really care about the audience, per se, like the general audience. Whereas Angier is all about maximizing his appeal, his broad appeal, and, and bringing it to the masses and just getting that effect of making so many people regardless of whatever sacrifices he needs to make of art. So you see, this is a very obvious metaphor for filmmaking. 
There's one, you know, filmmaker's filmmaker and one who's like a, for lack of a better term, like a Spielberg or a Michael Bay who well, who don't necessarily well I'm not I'm not saying Spielberg doesn't have artistic integrity and that's no, not no, what no. I'm saying <laughs> but what I'm saying is you know but they're still trying to deliver a product not always for Spielberg but many times that is just going to affect the largest swath of people um, whereas I'm sure and I think he's done some things like this you know if he really wanted to Spielberg he could just direct himself in very strict art house type things if he wanted to and, and he has some projects that are a little bit more like that mm-hmm. but that's not like his his body of work or anything he's not like a coppola who definitely had a few big things and then everything else is so niche uh, yeah. all the things of his that you never heard of <laughs> are just so niche <laughs> and george lucas would probably do more of that if he had an unlimited budget he'd probably do more of that weird niche stuff himself well I think his ego gets in the way. He couldn't do that. And speaking of the twins, you know, two people who equal one, um, or even Angier as the transporter man, he's doing the opposite. He's one man split into two. But anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, and I'm sure it's not accidental. But what I'm really trying to say is, I think, and this kind of, I this kind of thought started formulating in my head as I was watching it recently. And then again, when I watched more YouTube videos, I saw other people had the same idea as me, which was this almost comes off as an essay, a, a Nolan essay about or on debating with himself. This almost feels like it's a conversation with Nolan with himself and how he sees movie making because I feel going back to our original debate that Nolan is part Angier and part Borden and in all his movies there's an Angier and Borden element behind the filmmaking and that's what I was saying earlier where I feel like there's a pretty hefty share of each element in virtually all, certainly all the mainstream, uh, meaning um, 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 insomnia and post-insomnia, there's an element of Angier and Borden philosophy, I feel, in all the Nolan films, um, insomnia and after. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is Nolan having a conversation with himself, just like Woody Allen likes to have conversations with himself about different ideas in his scripts and in his movies. I think that's very much what this is about and how Nolan as a filmmaker lives in both worlds as the auteur Borden and as the showman um, Angier. That's interesting. I didn't really consider that aspect, but hmm. You know, I was even going to say Angier, he isn't quite the Michael Bay who I feel like, you know, willingly kind of takes shortcuts. Angier's obsessed with making just the perfect illusion. Like, he doesn't want to just do the double thing where he has that person who kind of looks like him, but isn't quite... He wants to get as perfect as he can, and he's willing to do anything he can to get there. So it's a little bit more complicated. Okay, I think all you need to do is substitute with... If you want to compare to Michael Bay, all you have to do is substitute Angier's goal with Michael Bay trying to deliver the best product. That being the... Hey! (laughs) if, If Michael Bay made a film, a new film... That everyone fucking loved, from top to bottom, the critics and, and crowds alike, 
that would be the greatest perfect illusion. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it that way, I mean, I'm sure you would be willing to do whatever it takes, metaphorically speaking, to well, deliver a project like that. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily cares that much. Maybe a Zack Snyder type would be more the uh, appropriate. Because Zack Snyder, yeah, I mean, look at the type of movies that he delivers. So he clearly cares a lot about delivering the best thing he can. He doesn't necessarily... Oh, you know, people make so much fun of uh, Michael Bay. And I was watching, like, the special features for... It was the fourth or fifth Transformer movie. I don't remember which one. Um, and when... Because I, I love the Transformer movies, but fourth or fifth was not the best of times. And... True. I watched the special features and it was him, you know, just in the edit bay, you know, running around on set. And I was like, man, you'd be hard pressed to find someone more dedicated to make, like, this does not look like a person who doesn't care. You know what I mean? Like, he is putting 150% of himself into every aspect of making those crappy Transformer movies that everyone makes fun of. He's like putting everything into it. He's not... He's not mailing anything in at all. Um, so I, I just had this interesting new respect for him when I saw that. That almost makes it more sad. <laughs> but... <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But but I was I was more thinking of the Bad Boys movies, or at least in terms of the script making. It was like completely on the fly, at least the first one. For him, Will Smith, and... Um... Oh fuck! What's that other guy's name? I can't believe I'm forgetting it. Um, is it Lawrence Martin? Martin, Martin Lawrence. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, them. They would just be like, "Let's throw this bit out. Let's do this today." They're just all over the place. But anyway, that's that's off topic. <laughs> hey, if you do it for one movie, though, I I get it. Yeah, yeah. Just don't do all your movies like that. Yeah, that's the thing I didn't know because the humor is so all over the place in his movies. I didn't know if that was a typical aspect of his script writing. I don't know. It's also interesting to note that um, not only was the other Magician movie that came out that year, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Hugh Jackman had just um, acted together in a movie that came out earlier in 2006 that also involved a magician. Completely different kind of story, but and that was a Woody Allen film. That's interesting to think about. And it's also interesting to think about that a few years after this movie, that Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall would star together in one of my all-time favorite Woody Allen films, uh, oh. Christina Barcelona. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know why anyone has anything bad to say about that movie. But um, yeah, and no, I was gonna say uh, this was quite a year for Hugh Jackman because he did this and The Fountain the same year, and that kind of showed that he had more range. Uh, but nobody saw The Fountain until oh. I think years after it passed. I'm just saying, no, nobody was talking about The Fountain at the time it came out. But I hear a lot more talk about it these days. Yeah, I saw it on HBO, and it made me an Aronofsky fan immediately. I was like, holy crap, this is brilliant. And I was like, I think I was like 12 years old, too, and I was like, this is like the best thing I've ever seen. I'm like obsessed with that movie. And Hugh Jackman. So I liked him in X-Men, but I was like, yeah, he's just, you know, he's just Wolverine, like whatever. But that movie showed me he had some range. I actually liked him in the sometimes reviled sometimes lauded late miserable oh yeah actually yeah. thought actually thought he was really good in that and the showman was a movie that i completely avoided for a time because i thought even though i like musicals in general from trailers i was like this is not the kind of musical i like 
um, is completely what I thought. And so I had another Batman Begins moment with that movie uh, <laughs> where I kind of avoided it and didn't want to pay it any mind. And then I don't know what caused me to watch it, and it fucking blew me away. Even yeah. though there's a lot of aspects of that movie that are not my thing, mo- mainly doing with visuals, um, the movie was so good despite its visuals, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, I missed that one, sadly. I didn't even know it was a musical for the longest time. Oh, jeez. Did you ever see uh, Prisoners? Uh, Denis Villeneuve film? No, I don't think so. No? That's another That's another one of uh, Jackman's best work. Really, really good in that. Jake Gyllenhaal, too, is also great in that movie. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I, I haven't seen all the Jackman movies, but I think this is right up there with one of his best performances. Yeah, it, I don't think it has a ton of range to it necessarily, and that was one of the things I was going to get into. Is oh. I think these are potentially Nolan's most complicated characters. The only one that comes close, I think, is Guy Pierce, and that's in its own way kind of cheapened by the fact that the character is always kind of different in that movie. If you know what I mean. Is he always kind of different? I feel like he's always kind of different. I feel like when it resets. In some ways, the character resets too. Uh, I feel like there's a there's a bedrock there that doesn't change for that character throughout that movie. Interesting. At, at the core, he's always the same person who's deluding himself and seeking some type of revenge um, to disquiet what's going on. Which, by the way, is who Angier is in this movie. Mm. Um, after the death of his uh, his wife and, and his like trying to kill himself early on and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I, I freely admit that I need to go back and revisit Memento. Yes, you do. Because I watched it I watched it two years ago and I decided very stupidly to watch the straightforward version and it right. legitimately damaged the movie for me. Like, I always thought it was a, a fine movie and I was, and after watching it just all the way through, I was like, oh, it's just a gimmick movie. Like, it doesn't actually work if you look at it. I... Wide. I only watched it maybe once in the chronological way, and I mean it's not as enjoyable to watch that way. But it did not—it did not dampen my feelings about the actual movie itself. I—I no, I was actually—I thought I was pleasantly surprised that it more or less works. Oh yeah, I, the logic holds. It's like up. it's not a bad movie. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> okay, that's an understatement. <laughs> oh, okay, like that. Yeah, straightforward. Yeah. It's not bad, but it shows that it's a flatter story. Because with with the gimmick, it makes it seem so much flashier and more interesting. When you really look yeah, at the story level, it feels... And that that's why I call it a gimmick movie. Yeah, but you could say that about why that one exorcist is better than the other version, or why is the, um, the Snyder cut better than the Whedon cut. I mean, it's exactly that. No, Because no, no, obviously... No. no, that is what it is. Because you're saying, yeah, if you watch it this way, it's okay, but if you watch it the other way, then it's all... Yeah, exactly. That's what... No. That's essentially what editing is all about. The difference with Memento is it's the exact same movie. It's just re-edited. Something like Justice League, it, they add in so much more stuff that was completely excellent. Okay, you're right about that. I'll give you that. Technically, yes, you are correct. But what I'm saying is, that's the whole point, though, of good editing in like a director's eye or an editor's hand or whatever you want to call it 
that's yeah. the point. That's why the the version of Memento you're supposed to watch is freaking amazing, and why the other version is just like, yeah, okay. But that's fine. That's fine. My my only point is because yeah, I still think the original version of Memento works very well, but it shows through that at the core of it is a mediocre story that's dressed up with a good gimmick. And I was going to ask what you thought about that element with this movie. Do you feel like this is a gimmick movie in some ways? Because uh, again, that was one of my that was one of my hangups. Well, that's what I was trying to say earlier with the fact that the, that the Tesla machine is this magic machine i mean magic in like what the fuck like okay like again it's like a deus ex machina in the sense that if you're following a story and it's just like oh my god what are they gonna do oh guess what i have this gun that will make a portal to home like what that was never explained and had no and how does that even work we're not gonna tell you like so that's that was kind of like what I had to go over in my mind many times upon my initial viewings because I was like, this movie's fantastic. But again, like like a mystery novel, like you're looking for the clues and how does this all work? And then someone says, oh, there's this character you had no idea existed. And you're like, what? Well, that's not fair. Like if you gave me no clues that this mystery gremlin was running around, like mm-hmm. grabbing everyone's wallets and making them disappear, but you had no idea that there was a gremlin until the end like that's not that's like you know that's like cheating right yeah kind of like a cheat yeah so that's why i was i grappled with that so like is the tesla device itself like a huge cheat that cheapens the whole movie and i think that's what a lot of people who are critical of the movie i think that's one of the reasons why some of those people were critical because they're like well there's a literal magic device you know wow that's funny see that was never a problem for me ever <laughs> my my problem is always I, like, have you ever seen Dead Ringers, the Cronenberg film? No. Yeah, that movie's all about two codependent twins who very much like in this movie, except it's not a mystery, they live the same life. Like, they they do, they are known individuals, but occasionally they just play each other to, like, have relationships, sleep with women, or do different sure. work engagements. It's like the parent trap. Yeah, except much, much darker. Like, it's a very, very dark and depressing tragedy is what the movie is. Okay. And so I just recently rewatched that because I'm going through all the Cronenberg movies. And so watching this shortly afterwards, I was like, oh, like, I do love the twists and mystery to this movie. But would it would have been more interesting had we gotten to know both these characters more. Like, you certainly see them. You can tell when it's a different brother. But had we focused on their codependent aspects more and kind of the tragedy of the two of them living a dual kind of person would it have made a better movie it would have made it a different movie i think it would have made it a movie that i would have enjoyed less maybe someone else would have enjoyed more i think the way nolan presents it and this is the way nolan movies are and kubrick films if you want to get to that next level of nirvana so to speak from watching this movie and his other movies, you have to do the work yourself. So you have to pay attention to the movie and everything it presents to you, and then you have to think about it in your own time after the fact, and then start thinking about what you're talking about, um, and think about the, the lives of the different brothers, and and it's just, it's just up to you. And that's only going to pertain to a small percentage of the audience, 
who's going to do that. But does Kubrick really do that? I mean, does he really do gimmick movies in this way? I'm not saying he does gimmick movies, but he he gives you something that it doesn't, like, on first blush, it's like, okay, got it, all right, got the movie. But when you start to think about it and take it apart in your head and go back and rewatch, you have to do the work to take it to the next level. Um and I think that's why so many Kubrick movies classically like fared rather badly when they were initially reviewed by critics and panned because they just gave it the once over and were like, oh, okay, that is what it was. But it's when you think about it, pick whichever one of his movies you want, when you think about it a lot more and dissect it, then you go, oh, oh. And then all these little things that you thought were innocuous in whatever Kubrick movie you realize we're by design and that is very much how this movie is but that's also how virtually every Nolan movie is as well um, and I think also that's why people don't appreciate Interstellar as much as they should because I don't think they do these mind leaps uh, uh, once they get home from the theater I don't think they start really breaking Interstellar apart uh, in their minds to really like appreciate the full genius of it same thing with Tenant, same thing with whatever. Well, that's. I'm glad you brought up Interstellar. Because many people's complaints with that movie is there's some great spectacle here. It's a cool idea, and the character plot could work. But Nolan's such a cold director that I felt nothing at the end. I'm just saying this is what the reviewers say. And so ultimately, it was like a flat note the whole way through. Yes, and I think what I was just talking about contributes to that in that movie. Do you feel that with this movie? Like when all the, cause all it's it's essentially a tragedy. These are two men, even though there's three, but two men completely destroyed by ambition and obsession. At the end, do you feel sad for the characters? Do you feel emotionally invested in them? The first time I watched it, and I think that's probably the barrel most people fall into, like everyday moviegoers. Um, my first reaction was more just about the surprise and the idea of mm -hmm. the cloning machine and killing yourself and the lengths you would go through for revenge. I think that's all I could think about initially when it came to this movie. It was much more for the first time now that, like when I watched it now, where I started to think much more about the suffering of virtually all the characters. Um, the, the main three, the Michael Caine character, the Scarlett Johansson, the Rebecca Hall, like everybody, all the suffering all around, um, I thought about a lot more this time than in a way I never had before. Yeah, definitely a tragedy for all the characters involved. But did you feel it? It was, al it was almost like the first time I watched it. It was almost like Sixth Sense, which I have not seen in like 19 years, but... Hmm. Sixth Sense completely blew me away the first time. I probably watched it six times, like, back to back, the first <laughs> time I watched the movie. <clears throat> and I was just so amazed by the trick, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. And then I was done with it. And who knows? Maybe if I go back and watch it again, I'll parse out all these other things I didn't realize, but I kind of don't think so. Um, yeah, you'll get some great performances. Uh, what's that woman who was in uh, Hereditary? What's oh, what's her name? 
the lead in that. Yeah, Sean loves her. I always forget her name, too. Yeah, she does a great, a gr early great performance in The Sixth Sense. But yeah, you get to the end of it and you realize that it was a twist movie. Like, there's a lot of great right. elements to it. The performances fool you into thinking that it was a great, you know, kind of character piece. Now, but it's really not. So again, when I first watched this movie, I kind of just thought of it as a twist movie. Like, oh, okay, there's all this fun stuff happening, but it's all about the twist. Mm -hmm. But I have changed my opinion so much now. Uh, it's not just a twist movie. That's one element. That is not all there is to it. Some mm -hmm. other interesting things, well, maybe, maybe not, that I realized a lot of YouTubers glommed onto with this movie um, is, okay, so most of the movie is told by each character reading the other character's journal or diary. Hmm. Yes. Very so, and we, and we know that there are intentional tricks and deceptions in each's, each's? In, in both of their um, narratives that they have written designed for the other. Right? That. <laughs> okay. But because that is so, um, many YouTubers have glommed onto the idea that whenever we see scenes in this movie that are specifically coming from, let's say, Angier reading Borden's diary. You know, he's like reading the diary and then we see it, right? Um, because it's from those diaries that were written with intent and deception in mind, YouTubers say that all the things that we see in the movie, which again is the bulk of it, we can't necessarily trust any of that as true. So oh. even though in the movie, we see the Tesla machine actually work in Colorado and actually do this thing with the hats and the cat, YouTubers are like, we don't know if that even ever happened because that was only what Borden got from like reading the journal or whatever. So they're saying it's possible, like, none of that's true. Or that only very minuscule parts of it are true. Um, and when you look at it that way, I saw a great theory out there that, and it's definitely a theory, it's not, I mean, there's a theory out there that the Tesla machine never worked the way we think it did, as presented in the movie. Um, there's a theory that that was all made up by Angier and was like the ultimate deception that he did to Borden. That um, the machine never worked, that he was still using a double of himself as he was earlier, and that the bodies that we see in the tanks are not real bodies and are not real facsimiles. Um, and we only see the one, at least on camera. Um, there's a great theory out there that explains how that was all fiction made up by Angier to, again, make Borden crazy. And it, it kind of works, even though I don't agree with it. It, it kind of works. Yeah. The people who said that were the same people who were involved in that documentary about The Shining. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> that room? Like, I, Yeah, I saw that. I thought it was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of people who were, who were really reaching in that documentary. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that's the same thing if you watch the Flat Earther documentary. But... Um, <laughs> But there was actually moments in the movie that I thought didn't quite work, but that would okay. work in that theory. Like, um, there's a certain point right after Angier's like, I'm going to go, Scarlett Johansson gives him the journal. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm going to go fuck up his uh, office to make it look like I stole it. Then we yes. see a shot with him and Fallon where he looks at Fallon and it's like, oh, like he's got the journal. 
I was kind of like, why why'd they include that shot? Like, that's kind of weird. They did it to, like, to, to trick you into thinking... But it ultimately worked, because it was their plan. Yeah, because, because it was really Borden's plan yeah. the whole time. But they added that little scene as a... That was a misdirect. Mm-hmm. To to make you still think it was Angier's plan. Yeah, no one does that sometimes where you, you can't always trust what you're seeing. Because it's like... Absolutely. The delivery of that line like is completely opposite of what the intent of the character is saying. And so you just kind of have to ignore it to some degree. <laughs> yeah, but, but see, but that reminds me of those... Have you seen those videos that have been out there? Well, like on TikTok and other places. Where there's a audio phrase that's being repeated and it's exactly the same but when they throw a different caption on the screen you hear the caption have you seen those no i, I don't use i don't have tiktok so i i don't know well, that's where i see them more lately but they're not only on tiktok um but they are crazy sound experiments because if you just listen to the audio you'll hear like I was born on a pirate ship. I was born on a pirate ship. I was born on the pirate ship. And it's like you hear the exa- it's literally the exact same sound over and over. But then when they throw a caption up there, uh, you know, you will hear what is written. And you you can do this yourself. Like you can close your eyes and you'll just hear the same audio. But as soon as you see the words, whatever they write, you will hear those words in the audio. And I think that that's kind of what's going on with what you were talking about in that scene. That depending on what context you have in your mind, you go, oh, it, why are they saying it like that? Or they should be saying it like this. I think it's because of like the bias of, of what you're thinking in your mind that they should be acting like this, they should be acting like this. You know what I mean? I think depending on the context in which you view it, you'll see it differently. The way, Even though they're acting it the same way. That's fair. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, I, I could definitely see that. You should try one of those videos uh, that I was talking about. That, that is kind of weird, mind-blowing, uh, <laughs> weird stuff. It, like literally seeing the letters will change the sound that you hear in your brain. It's out of control. But anyway, it's like a combination of an optical and auditory illusion. Yes, cool. exactly. It, that stuff is crazy. It's almost like the blue dress and the white dress because mm-hmm. different people will hear different things. Because if you put different captions to different people, but they listen to the same audio, they will 100% hear different words. Um, or uh, what was the old Empire Strikes Back uh, conundrum? Hansel's jacket was it blue or uh, was it brown? Was it green? Do you remember? Do you remember that? <laughs> I'm not that familiar with that. I mean, I've always thought it was blue, but that's yeah, interesting. I think it was solved by the Blu-rays. The Blu-rays finally made people realize, oh, it was just my old uh, VHS copy fucking with me. Yeah, that's <laughs> usually the problem. Is exactly what that is. Oh, um, let me think. What else is so amazing? Um, How about the performances? I mean, across the board, I think. There's some great, great stuff in this. Everyone's top-notch. I forget that it. this is still relatively young um, Scarlett Johansson. Like, when she was... I mean, she's another one of those actor-actresses who just came out of the gate, like, boom. Like, she was on the map, like, almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, this is still relatively early in her career. Um, and it's interesting to see a Scarlett Johansson movie... Where she is so not the focus of the movie, and she's almost forgettable at times. Yep. Uh, that's interesting because you don't see that very often with, with any Scarlett Johansson role. Like, could you imagine? I, I don't know if it exists. Maybe it does in some of her lesser-known works, but like a Marilyn Monroe film where you don't even realize like she's in the movie. Um, 
because she's just not the focus. Yeah, I think, I think because of her starting her career in music, I think probably all her film roles kind of accentuate her. But oh, what's the actor's name? It's Josh Hartnett. Is that the guy who was in Pearl Harbor? Yep, Josh Hartnett. In, yeah. in Wicker Park. So did you know that he was Nolan's original pick to be Batman in Batman Begins? Oh, interesting. And Josh Hartnett turned it down, so then he went with Christian Bale. And then the prestige came, I mean, casting came out for it, and Josh Hartnett really wanted to play the Christian Bale part in the prestige. Aww. But he think and he and he auditioned or something for it. But he thinks the reason, or according to him, uh, he wasn't chosen for the prestige because I guess Nolan was sour from the first situation with Batman. So. Aw, yeah, I used to think that guy was super duper hot, especially in Sin City. I was like, God damn, that guy is that guy's sex on a stick. But anyway, <laughs> talk about ruining the whole trajectory of your career. Oh, I know. It's sad. He, yeah, he he was good in a lot of stuff. He just never really went anywhere. Although he does that, he does have that series now. Um, what's it called? Do you know what series I'm talking about? No, I don't. Oh, he had some Penny Dreadful. I think it's called. He's in that. I know the se- I, I've never seen it, but I'm aware of it. I had no idea who was in that. If he is. Yeah, I've I've heard everyone saying that he's great in it. I think that's the show he was in. Yeah, Penny Dreadful. Yeah, I gotta watch that at some point. I heard it's a great series, but but anyway, that's again <laughs> off topic again. I have at least three other things that were on the tip of my mind. I'm probably forgot like one of them already that I definitely wanted to talk about. Um, so let's not gloss over the whole Tesla Edison thing going on, mm, and, yes, and how much that is another analogy or foil for the Angier Borden relationship. Yeah, I'm. I'm assuming that was the inspiration for their script in the first place. Or we should say the original novel, because that was actually something that was in the novel as well. Oh, yes, novel. Sorry. So that wasn't Nolan's creation, but he definitely carries that over for good reason, mm-hmm. um, because that's that's probably what really, really inspired the book. To be honest, yeah. was to tell the Tesla Edison story with these fictional characters. Um, and their ambitions, and their tactics, and their ways, and their, um, um, what do you call it, their, uh, not dueling, but... Yeah, definitely the same career tra- trajectory, and kind of trying to knock the other person out of the path, using super dummy tactics. <laughs> and one, you know, felt he had the superior product, but he couldn't really sell it to the masses, um, at one point, I don't know, I mean, historically speaking, not in the movie, but historically speaking, at one point, I don't know, did Edison steal something, some ideas from, from Tesla and made them his own? Um, there's some other interesting things like the, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but the Chinaman um, in the movie, Magician, was based upon a real character who's an interesting person. If you look up some stuff on him, um, so there, there was a, an actual performer in London in this period, uh, magi- magician, who had this whole affect as this Asian mystical person who did these tricks. And it was true that this guy was literally living a double life to sell this character and his magic and his persona. The guy, well, at one source I saw that he was British, and at another source I, I saw that he was 
um, American. Either way, he was a Caucasian man in real life and <laughs> just completely shaved his head and squinted and did the whole clothing and lived like his whole double life, whether he was on stage or not. He was always in character. And supposedly the way the story goes, like no one ever heard him ever speak English until he died on stage in real life. A trick went wrong and he got shot or something. And it was when he was dying, he said something like, help, please help. And that was like the only time anyone ever heard him speak English was as he died. And that man's name was John Bennett. <laughs> Is that true or are you just saying that? No, that's uh, that's uh, the talents of Wayne Trying. Oh, uh, what what's his name? Uh, something Chang. I don't I don't remember the character's name. <laughs> right, right. But it's interesting if you look up photos of this magician I'm talking about and look at this guy and wow, he's a Caucasian man who's masquerading as from the Orient. It's pretty interesting. Um, I was going to say something else though. Um, uh, yeah, as you were speaking, I pulled off my copy of the Jade Mask, one of the uh, Charlie Chan mysteries. There's another. Oh, uh... I used to love those when I was a kid. <laughs> I've never seen them uh, as not a kid, but I've wanted to. Um, yeah. Some interesting differences in the novel. Uh, like I said, a lot of it follows. And actually, reading about or learning about the novel made the novel sound really interesting. Like hmm. something to go check out and read. Because. Apparently, the whole novel is just told from following ex excerpts from each of their journals or diaries or whatever. So that's oh, how no. the whole story is told, is in their separate narratives. Um, uh. But <laughs> another key, uh, uh, one of the early key differences is that it's not that Angier's wife um, dies tragically on stage, it's that. Uh, Borden does something, I can't remember what, but he does something that causes Angier's wife to have a miscarriage. Um, and that's oh. the impetus for Angier in that version of the story. Um, but another difference, even though Tesla and all that is there in the novel, um, something interesting is that the device works, but it doesn't work in the same way as it does in the movie. In oh. the book... Um, the device, if you stand on the platform, it will transport your body and your thoughts and memories into the new version, but what was left behind, quote unquote, the original, becomes a shell of a person, meaning it's still a person, but it, it, it can no longer think or function, almost like an empty person. Mm. So you don't have the same um, moral struggle in the book mm. with the original quote-unquote because they're not really... Yeah, not really them anymore. Yeah, they're not really viable humans, I guess you could say. Because the whole consciousness only goes to the transported man. So that's a key difference. Um, mm. And then um, for the climax, um, instead of... Instead of... Borden going to sabotage the show and then causing um, Angier to apparently die. Um, Borden goes and sabotages the show, but he tries to sabotage the machine, but it causes the machine to do something that it never did before. 
instead of doing what I just described um, and creating one viable human and one not, it he screws up the machine that it does actually create two copies of Angier. But the difference is, it's it literally splits them personality-wise, um, oh, no. <laughs> and 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 after the malfunction, there's a version of Angier who is just horrible and disgusting and who can barely live. And there's this other version who is almost perfect in his being, but oh, he's boy. but he's very like he's he's almost ghost-like or wafy like in, in physical in physical being, but but idyllic like mentally. And then there's like this other version. So it kind of separates them into two parts. So I don't know. Just saying, those are some key differences. Oh, oh, oh! So, so it's kind of and like there's the, a major subplot. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I was saying it was kind of like the two Bordens that we see. But but go ahead. Yeah. And there, oh, there's one major thing that was omitted from the novel completely, and that's there's a huge subplot that um, that there is these descendants in modern times, meaning the 90s. There's these two descendants, a boy and a girl, oh. and each is a descendant from each family line, born in Angier. And see, they find the journals, and so they're reading about their ancestors. And I think they have some type of relationship with each other. I mean, they know each other or something, and they're learning about their ancestors and, and what was going on in the, in the turn of the century. And then, yeah, throughout the book, they realize their lineage and how they're related. Um, and a spoiler for the novel, um, you learn that um, because of that accident, like one of the versions of Angier from the accident um, takes on immortal qualities and is actually still alive in 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 1990s time period. Interesting. But yeah, so I mean that sounds like a really interesting uh, cookie novel. Yeah, definitely cookie. And the author, whose name I can't think of. Um, he was getting offers by both um, Nolan to make, you know, the book into a film, and also from Sam Mendes. Oh, okay. And and the the novelist, the author, he actually wanted Sam Mendes to be the one to make the movie, but I guess Warner Brothers or whomever made the better deal, um, and that's the way that went. And also, it took Nolan from the time he got the rights. Um, it took him a whole five years to write this, and, and that's when he got his brother on board, like midway to help him finish it. And that's an interesting dynamic too to think that it was brothers who wrote this script. I mean, for the movie, mm. for the mm-hmm. screenplay. It's another thing to think about, right there. Yeah. I'll just quickly mention since you were talking about the author. Yeah, it, his name is Christopher Priest, and I always thought that he was the comic book writer, Christopher Priest. I was like, oh, I didn't know that he wrote novels too. But doing the research for this podcast, I realized that no, it's two separate people. The comic writer is something completely different. And, and what did the comic writer priest uh, work on? Uh, he did some Black Panther stuff, but I mainly know him from his Deadpool writing. Mm. Which okay, he, he's pretty good in Deadpool, but that sounds familiar for some reason. Mm. Now that I, now that I put those two together, but yeah, definitely lots of different aspects. I and mean, I'm glad they 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 still focus on the dueling uh, journals aspect, but. I would hate just reading that in the book. I hate epistolary uh, novel writing. Can't stand that. But. <laughs> really? 
You like? Did you ever try to read Dracula? Bram Stoker's Dracula. No. Oh, it's so dry. Or like The Handmaid's Tale. Those are another another epistolary type of writing. I wish I could think of one that I can remember that I do like or think probably of, but I can't. Yeah, Lovecraft. Oh, coming. maybe um, was one or two like Interview of the Vampire was kind of like that, right? It it it's kind of like that, but it like it's more like there's a narrator who like I'm telling this story and then it branches off and the story is like a different novel, so it's not like just reading a journal. But it was like, but it was told from like Lewis's point of view, I yeah. believe the first one, and then you get the Lestat version, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever Super to get cool. one person's version and then the others. Yeah, I, yeah, it's it's too bad they haven't resurrected those in adaptations now. I think they can make some really cool versions of those in the modern day. But no, I I agree. Or just do another kick-ass anime like Castlevania. I mean, where it just that seems like cool. you just have unlimited time and budget to to get it all out there. I mean, the whole story. Yeah, that could definitely be cool. For this being a discussion of a Nolan film, mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing how little we've talked about the visuals and the cinematography. Ooh, yes, and the music. I think this may be the last collaboration that um, uh, Nolan had with this cinematographer, the one that I spoke of, the same one, of course. I think from Falling Women, I'm not sure about the first two, but certainly yeah. Insomnia. Yeah, it's the same guy, right? Um, yep. The only one he didn't do was uh, Batman Begins, up to this point. Oh, and he also used the same composer for all those movies. Uh, all his movies except for Batman Begins. We're all the same composer up to this one, and this is the last time he worked with that same composer. But anyway, um, for being a Nolan movie, we've barely talked about the cinematography and the visuals. That's pretty remarkable in of itself. That being said, of course, <clears throat> it's the only Nolan film to really be, I mean, you know, it's a period film, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. And that being said, as far as period films go, I mean, this is lush. This is amazing. Every set piece, whether it's location or whatnot, is just incredible. The costuming is what it should be. And then what's even more remarkable to me is that this was a relatively low-budget, modest-budget film, and it does not look that way, I don't think. Um, I think it was about $40 million, this movie. And it's just GD remarkable. It doesn't... God, it doesn't look like any expense was spared uh, at any point through the movie. Yeah, and it's not like they needed a lot of effects or anything, so I think it was reasonably budget budgeted for what the movie is, and yeah, it just looks stunning. But, you know, oh, I heard, I read that this movie was filmed like 90% on handheld cameras, and you don't mm. really think about it one way or the other, you know, as you're just watching the movie. It doesn't especially feel handheld, it doesn't especially feel... You just don't well, even notice it. <laughs> I, I I don't necessarily agree. I think the camera's like almost always moving in this movie, and the kind of edit is always super quick. So I, I could see it being handheld. Okay, yeah, but you know it's it's option it's often obnoxious. You know, is what I'm trying to say when other people use that style. Oh yeah, that, I I can understand that. But no, there's some really standout moments visually, like the moments with all the light bulbs in the field. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a pretty amazing moment. Um, 
even just seeing the hats all scattered around looks super great. There's some beautiful stuff in this. That's the thing. We've all seen different period stuff, usually dramas, whatever. You, you know, why can't everything look this good? You know, even <laughs> if even if it's, you know, not sci-fi, not action. Because this is neither, well, it's almost, it's not sci-fi, but it's almost genre, I guess. But mm -hmm. it's more a drama than anything, a, a drama and a mystery. Uh, yeah. More than anything. And it just looks so great, so dynamic. And it's not, it's not, and I like those movies, but it's not like the um, Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Downey Jr., like Sherlock stuff, where it's supposed to be Victorian turn of the century England, but then it has like a Matrix aesthetic, which <laughs> it's fine. It doesn't throw me in those movies, but this is not that obviously yeah i'm i'm a guy Ritchie fan but i watched like maybe 20 minutes of the first sherlock and i was like i don't really know if guy Ritchie fits this time period maybe i should just go back and re like just set myself in that world but the first yeah, time I it think was really off-putting just leave your brain at home and just enjoy those movies sure i thought those movies were perfectly enjoyable i mean i had a good time watching and i was i was miffed there wasn't a third but um hmm. oh but but also the music i really need to call it on this because originally i thought it was han zimmer it wasn't until i actually looked at the like the credits on imdb that i was like oh it's actually the guy who was doing all of his uh early right I, and i probably would have thought it was han zimmer too before i quote unquote researched it for this discussion um i had no idea he collaborated with that guy so much yeah definitely nolan has a particular mode that he wants for his movies and it comes across really well in this one i think in terms of the music i agree i agree 100 percent um another little thing i never noticed and never would have if it wasn't pointed out to me in youtube <laughs> so going back to the tesla edison thing um there's a there's a part of the movie where angier is going to like some type of world's fair for ideas for a new mm. trick and that's where he sees the Tesla coil and everything and the demonstration. And it, it there's the, you know, the grand demonstration and then it starts going wrong. Uh, the machine starts malfunctioning. And there starts to be these jeers like in the crowd. You know, ah, it doesn't work, you know, whatever. And if you go back and watch the movie, at one point, Angier looks and the camera focuses on just a random heckler. <clears throat> who's just like shouting and you know saying ah oh, this, this is phony whatever whatever it's nothing you don't think anything of it you don't think anything of it until later in Colorado when um, when Angier is in the hotel or wherever um, and he sees these guys coming in and he's like who are these guys like the feds or what like, no no these are Edison's guys and then Angier makes eye contact with one of them and it's the heckler from the World's Fair. Like, he was actually Edison's planted guy the whole time. And it's just a little subplot, little thingy. <laughs> never would have noticed. Never would have thought about it. But I just love those types of nuggets and morsels in, yeah, usually in the Kubrick and the Nolan stuff, but it's not just them. I just love those little details like that. That kind of stuff. I never would have noticed that in a million years. Yeah, see, for me, I think that stuff's fun, but it doesn't overall add that much for me. 
because the Edison, the Edison aspect is so minor that I don't really feel like it makes that Again, much difference. But, I think it goes to what I was saying earlier. You have to, as an audience, as an active audience member, you have to like do the homework in your mind, like later. Yeah, in, in terms of the the subtext of this whole movie is kind of a kind of homage to their rivalry. That makes it more interesting, but it, on the surface, it doesn't add that much for me. And that's kind of my problem with this movie, which is mostly a minor problem, which I feel like it's it's not so much a gimmick film like Memento because I feel like the characters are more interesting. But I feel True. like but I feel like the characters aren't quite all that they could be necessarily, partially because of the gimmick. Like, I feel like had we explored the relationship between the twins more, and it not been such a reveal, I feel like maybe we could have gotten into their heads a little bit more. And again, like you said, on more watches, you, you can definitely tell which scenes are which twin. But it, it you know, I, I still don't necessarily feel anything when they, they die or when one of them chooses to kill Angier. I see what you're saying, and that could definitely make a, another good movie. But it would be a different movie, um, and it, like I said, it could still be good. Uh, it could be really good, but it, I think it would also be like saying, "I like this version of Romeo and Juliet on film because they get into these aspects and focus more on this." Whereas, oh, but I like this version of Romeo and Juliet, you know. And it's like, yeah, okay, there could be two good versions of Romeo and Juliet, and one you know, appeals more to this type of person and this one to that. And I mean, that's what would happen, I think, if there was that version of the movie. Well, let me ask you this. Because I, th I think I asked earlier if by the end, if you kind of felt the tragedy, like when one of the one of the Bordens dies and one of the end, or the main Angier dies, like, did you feel an emotional impact? But I, I, I feel like Nolan's intent is for this movie to be a tragedy. But by the end, I don't, I'm not hit by it necessarily. I think, like other Nolan movies, it's he has his dual purpose, kind of like the magicians again, and their approaches to to their magic on stage or their performing. I think Nolan is of two minds about this, um, which is here's the emotional element, grapple with it as you like. Now that you've seen the whole movie. But also take some time to marvel at this intricate clockwork piece that I did at the same time. Yeah, and I think great, that's kind of... This great hmm? trick that he pulled off. Because he, yes. he's almost presenting himself as the magician behind this movie. Yes! So that, that's kind of my problem. <laughs> that's not my problem. That's amazing. That's a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup rather than just having... See, it's like Caleb just wants either just the peanut butter or he wants the chocolate bar. I am all about the peanut butter cup. No, it's just I, I see the scene where Angier is explaining at the end where he's like, oh, Borden, you missed it. The whole thing is about impressing the audience. It's about feeling that, feeling overwhelmed by them being tricked by my trick. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get the trick. The trick was, was, I wish I had been fooled by it. I mean, I predicted all the things but it was still a masterfully done movie but i feel like i should be sad that angier's dying and i feel like i should be sad that borden 
one part of him is dying. So I don't really care. As I dying. said, with my experience, as I said, with my experience with this film, when I saw it in the early days, I was just more focused on the trick itself and what, how Nolan was able to deceive me. And that's, and I didn't pay much mind to the drama of the characters. Um, this viewing, I already knew the whole trick and everything. That was no issue. Mm -hmm. I was completely absorbed in the drama of the characters this time. Much more than ever before. I never really thought about any of the characters much more than, would, other than what I previously stated. I did think a lot about Angier in particular killing himself um, over and over again. Um, but mm -hmm. that was about it. Uh, this time I was fully absorbed in everybody and all their struggles and all their everything and all their angst and what they were dealing with personally all across the board. So, so, you, so you felt like an emotional hit at the end? Not an emotional hit, not like that, which I get a lot in other Nolan movies. Really bad or good, depending on how you look at it. Um, I did not get that emotional hit, but I was definitely more absorbed in just contemplating everybody and, and their individual character arts and, and storylines and really thinking of them as really fully three-dimensional characters in a way I did not before. But emotionally hit, um, it's amazing to me how you still, or I, or I guess I'm speaking for myself, I, even though I've seen it multiple times, I know how it ends, I still feel bad at Angier's shock when he, when he gets shot and he sees who shot him. And it's weird to feel anything like that for him because he's been the worst. Well, they've both been bad. The bad brother and him have been so bad the whole movie. And so that's a trick in and of itself. And it's not necessarily a masterful Nolan trick. It's just a thing that happens in literature that you can still feel sorry for. I don't even want to call him the antihero because he's not the antihero. He's just, he's like the, he's just the antagonist, basically. Yeah, well, he's almost more the pr protagonist than uh, Borden is. We see more from his viewpoint than the other one. Um, oh, no, 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 no. He seems to be the protagonist on paper and in the movie when you just watch the movie. Yes, the movie, I would say, revolves much more around Angier. But that being said, I'm saying he's the antagonist because he's really the baddie. It's just, it, you know, it's like those... I haven't watched any of them, but I guess it's like those newer Disney live-action films where, where the baddie's like the center of attention like Maleficent or Cruella, I guess. So, I mean, in that sense, yes, he's the protagonist. Well, we, we could definitely argue that. I I mean, I think they're both kind of each other's antagonists and they're both their own protagonists. Cause... They are, except, like I said, the bad brother and Angier are really the douchebags and the other brother is just kind of like... like collateral damage of victim who's like brought into all this shit unwillingly and who gets the last uh, the last villainous act by killing Angier that, that's why I say yeah see he's really the protagonist that you didn't know was the protagonist um, but that's also why I say it doesn't really matter the uh, whether they're a dual person or not because he still fulfills the other's actions by the end so no but, it, <laughs> but it's also just like Again, it's like what Nolan does, how how there's 
whatever the theme is, it'll be hammered. And but I, to me, hammered in a good way, which is there's the two brothers and they're two sides of the same person. There's Angier and Borden, they're foils for each other. And there's and there's um let's say Epstein. Uh, there's Edison and Tesla, and they're foils for each other. And um, we see all these multiple hats. They're like copies and copies of the same per- same thing, same person. We see constantly all the birds, all the birds that um, are are uh, metaphorically brothers. But remember, like, there's all this stuff about every day, like no bird knows who's going to be the lucky one who's going to be the unlucky yep. one whenever borden does a trick it's not always the same one who gets the prestige or whatever um oh this is a good one i got from youtube which was that with the birds right and with the old-fashioned trick you know one unlucky bird would get crushed in its cage right mm-hmm. but then the other bird would be the lucky one who gets to live and that's exactly what happens to borden the bad brother gets crushed in his cage in prison he is hung and he's the brother who didn't make it and that was brilliant because i was because they were describing how he was like the bird in the cage uh, at the end when he's in prison or not the end but you know, whatever that's it's fucking amazing i love that when in, in any arts not just in nolan films and not just in film I just love when it's the theme and it's just repeating, 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 and rippling and rippling and rippling. It's almost like Cloud Atlas. <laughs> mm. I think I'm supposed to watch that movie again at some point in my life. I just rented it once, watched it once, and I was like, I'm done with it. But I think I need to go back because I've heard some people say that it's actually brilliant. I don't know. Maybe it is. Let's do it. I would love to revisit it too. <laughs> I keep, I've been meaning for years to go back to it. I just never. But then Cloud Atlas, how it's like the same thing happening and over and over. And I know there's other stories out there that I like that it's like generational and it's the same thing keeps happening. I love that stuff. Um, the stuff, because now this is actually more interesting, I guess, than the, than the uh, Matrix. But um, in, I mean, the Matrix. Than Cloud Atlas in Matrix, how there's that whole concept of how Neo's been going through the same simulation over and over, and he fails and fails, but then eventually he works. Mm. It works, and the whole thing gets reset. And oh, what was I watching recently that had that same exact concept? And I about there's always oh, maybe it was when we were watching Metropolis or something. Me and Sean, I can't remember. But it was something about. Whenever you have a system like that, like whether it's fascism or like Metropolis or there's always uh, um, someone who comes along who's an anomaly, who, who tries to buck the system and, and then maybe they'll fail and they'll fail and fail, but then eventually they'll be the one who like changes everything. Or maybe I was watching some Clone Wars shit and that's what was happening. But just that, con- things like that, things that just repeat forever and it's the same old thing over and over again generations going back and forth about the same stupid arguments and war i i love that stuff i love that stuff and i I love all this idea of duality of brothers and like i said i think you know and and nolan writing it with his brother and i think this is all about nolan talking about both halves of himself as it pertains Mm -hmm. to filmmaking um there's probably some elements of nolan who thinks of himself as being an imposter in some aspect, I mean in real life, where he portrays himself as this person, but actually inside his inner self is something else. 
like just love it all and then like you said the how it is yes an obvious metaphor for just filmmaking in general and how mm-hmm. every movie is essentially a pledge and a turn and a and a prestige and and um every movie is made up nothing is real everything is actors um everything's a story but as an audience member you're just willing to go with it and let the filmmaker take you wherever they're going and hopefully it pays off and yep. you know and your own willing sense of disbelief there's that great moment at the end when angier is saying like yeah the audience knows that none of this like it's all a trick and they know the world's simple the great part is seeing them getting carried away into something that is kind of fantastical hell fucking yeah yeah that's very much nolan's point of view yes yes and that's my point of view as a super nolan fanboy um <laughs> that is why i freaking love all his movies because that's that's uh, that's the thing that's the thing when you watch all his movies and you contemplate them this deeply each and every one of them like we are this movie you see i mean that's what he's doing like oh in in just like this movie how all the things you need to know are given to you very plainly even in the very beginning of the movie and just like you know if you're really paying attention you can tell there's obviously twins and you get it and it's disguised and it's really obvious if you either pick it up on your own or you just watch the movie the second time it's all super obvious there's so many lines but that's how all nolan's movies are like the stuff is always there he always gives you what you need to know for each individual movie but a lot of people just don't or they get a little bit of it but they don't get all of it like everyone i know who's watched tenet um and they're all mostly casual movie viewers let's say um Everybody I know says that the movie looked cool. There was some cool action. I have no idea what it was what it was about or what was going mm-hmm. on. I have heard that from almost everyone I know who's seen the movie. It's just like okay. It's funny that goes exactly against what I was about to say. <laughs> oh, what's that? I was gonna say my problem with Nolan is he constantly <laughs> feels the need to do what the studio did with Psycho, where at the end a psychologist comes out and explains like, oh, this is what split personality is. This is what this meant. I feel like Nolan constantly feels like like his audience isn't smart enough to understand what he was saying. But I guess sometimes they aren't. <laughs> You're right to a degree. And he does it more in some movies than others. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, though, I kind of like that in Psycho. But that aside. Oh. <laughs> um, that aside. No, I do. But anyway, <laughs> even though he does that to a certain degree, and I'm not just... I'm not really talking about The Prestige, but some of his other movies right now. He does reveal a certain amount, like you say. But in some of his other films, he really doesn't go all the way, though. (coughs) And I think, excuse me, in a lot of his other films, people take that explanation and go, all right, there we go, end of story. And they stop there. And in a lot of his movies, you got to do, again, the homework at home. Uh, And Casual film viewers, I don't think are really into that, (laughs) doing the homework. Yes, (laughs) Yes, um, <laughs> but I think Inception is is one of those where I go. Um, so did you get the movie? And they go, yeah, I get it. The different levels of dreams, the time passes, and they're like, yeah, I get it, I get it. And then I'm like, so is I can't think of his name, uh, DiCaprio's characters. Um, um, so then I go, so at the very end, uh, is he really in the real world or not? 
I don't know. Or some people just be like, oh, he's in the real world. Or, no, it, it, but it, it's not clear. Even though there's an ex- explanation for the rest of the movie. It ultimately doesn't matter. It's extremely, it doesn't matter. But it, it is extremely debatable, though. And But people just seem to just go, oh, no, it's like this. And I'm just like, how are you so sure? Or, yeah. like with Tenet, spoiler, because I hope whoever's listening <laughs> to this has seen his movies. Um, but, like, Tenet, okay, the few people I know who go, oh, I, yeah, it, one was going forward, one was going backwards. All right, that's it. Like, okay, first of all, that's extremely reductive for the whole movie. <laughs> and they go, Cat was like, oh, she was like, I don't get it. She's like, we've seen all this done before. And I was like, where, Cat? Where have we seen this all before? And she was like, uh, what did she say? She was like, 12 Monkeys, Doctor Who, and she named something else. And I was like, I don't know how you think Tenet is that. I mean, okay, I get it. Everything you named involved time travel. Get that. But this is not time travel. I mean, in the, this is not, I'm in this year, and now I appear in this year. That's not what Tenet is, for starters. Um, but anyway, and then I go, oh, so you know, yeah, one goes forward, one goes backwards. I go, all right, right. And then I go, um, what's his name? Uh, Edward Cullen. Um, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. I go, so do you know who Robert Pattinson was? They never have an answer for that. I can't remember if you and I discussed this. Who's Robert Pattinson in the movie? I. I don't. I don't remember if we discussed it either. Was it the the kid again? I haven't seen it since the theaters, so I don't even remember what I thought at the time. <laughs> my my memory of it's like gone. Yes, he's the kid. He's the kid. And sure. <laughs> and yeah, go back and watch it, and you'll. There's these. God, there's some damn subtle hints uh, in the movie. See, all all I remember was the like great filmmaking throughout. I don't even remember what the plot was really. Like so much of it's just gone. So. And, I, and so I tell people that, and some go, oh, okay. Oh, really? That's it? Oh, okay. Or they go, well, I guess, if you say so. <sighs> that's, that's the thing. And so, I don't know, it's, it's fun to look for those things in the Nolan movies. Like, the, uh, yeah, because, yes, a lot of it's spelled out, but not all of it. Not all of it. And so many of his movies are open to interpretation at the end. But yeah, yeah, and I, I feel like sometimes it's more he needs to spell his themes. He feels like this is—if you guys didn't get it, this was the whole movie was about not necessarily plot-wise, but just kind of what his ideas were behind it. Like I feel like he does that constantly with the Batman movies. And speaking of the uh, Interstellar movie, sure. <laughs> I don't think I could find anyone I know from my contemporary friends who could actually fully explain to me what happened and how the movie was resolved in the end or the story I, I don't think hardly anyone I know can explain that and I get it it's because they had a certain amount of apathy when they watched it and they didn't really care and fine but I'm just saying like that to me that's key to me loving that movie is um, is understanding how that all actually worked and how the fourth dimension worked in that movie but eh, most people I know don't really care about that <laughs> yeah maybe we should cover that at some point because it's also been maybe a couple years another, another thought though I've had since we watched Insomnia recently and now this um, 
and I don't watch all the Nolan movies that frequently all the time. I do with Interstellar. Um, that's the one I rewatch the most, probably. Um, but I don't do it with all the movies all the time. But I'm starting to see a trend in myself, which is when, when I now revisit one of these Nolan movies I haven't seen in a long time, I have like this newfound love for it. Or it's now elevated because insomnia got much more elevated after i watched the recent time compared to what i thought prestige just got really much more elevated because of this nice. viewing compared to what i thought before but i have a feeling and, and like you know i would rank it i think i'd rank it higher but i don't know though because it's hard for me to rank the nolan films especially because some i've seen more recently and some a long time ago but I feel like if I watch Batman Begins, the same thing's going to happen. And if I watch Dark Knight, oh, Dark Knight Rises, I revisited it like a year ago. And I hadn't seen it like in five years. And when I watched it a year ago, I was like, you know, this ain't so bad. And I was like, this movie, like, people always talk crap about it. Like, it ruined the trilogy. I get it's not the Dark Knight, but it, I don't think it's that bad. And so I feel like that's just going to happen continually. If I just keep revisiting um, Nolan films, um, yeah, I'll just this is this is probably the last thing that I gotta say. But yeah, I, I watched this because of our previous discussion, and it's it's unfortunate that I watched it in such cl- uh, close proximity to uh, Dead Ringers, because with Dead Ringers, by the end, the tragedy of it just bore me down to the point where it it really did bring me into tears and i was kind of like god like i can't believe how sad this movie became so it was a really it was really fun in some parts and then watching this where they had a similar dynamic just without the mystery element by the end i was disappointed that i wasn't broken down by the tragedy of it all i get what you're saying and so in that way the movie disappointed me but it's still just in terms of the filmmaking the performances and even even the twists i think still work really well but just the emotional element i feel like is the the big weakness i get what you're saying but although i do like movies that move me that way i don't have to have that in, in every like like you know i watched 2001 i don't come away like you know having an existential crisis or anything or feeling extremely emotional about about any particular character in that. And that's kind of how I am with Clockwork Orange. It's kind of how I am with Full Metal Jacket. It's kind of how I am with Eyes Wide Shut. That's how I... But I still think they're all fucking amazing, though. That's, that's funny. Because I'm the opposite. <laughs> I, I find all those... Except for maybe Eyes Wide Shut. I find the other ones really emotionally uh, moving. But maybe that's why Interstellar is perhaps my favorite Nolan film of all. Perhaps... Um, because that one always gut punches me every time I watch it in the way you were talking about. So maybe that's why it's my favorite of all of them. But I still like them all. But do you think that no one was going for tragedy? Because, I mean, it's quite an unfortunate end for, like, all the characters. I mean, Rebecca Hall with with this movie. Yes, I do think so. Rebecca Hall commits suicide. Yes. One of the Bordens gets killed. and Yeah, I feel like it should be an emotionally affecting end. Yes. And like I said, I never considered those emotions ever quite so much as I did this time. Not even, it's not even close. Yeah. And that, that, that that's why I'm saying. I think it's a weakness somewhere well, in the script or in the performances. 
something just didn't connect quite right to it right. I'm gonna make a horrible analogy right now. Here it goes. It's almost like saying, like, I really, really like Casablanca, but I can't give it five stars because it had a lack of color. No. And no. I, I argue, my argument with that, I know it's a horrible analogy, but my argument is, like, not all movies have to be in color. And not all movies have to be emotionally resonant for me to, like, really marvel at them and enjoy them, is what I'm saying. But th that's why I ask, what do you think Nolan's intent was? Well, I think that, I think... I think it was both. Going back to the duality of the movie, I think it was both. He was trying, and I think this is what he's trying. I think this is what he is trying to do in every one of his movies. And now there's a different um, chemistry balance in each of them. For instance, Tenant is not so much about the personal drama, and it's probably on the lesser end of the spectrum. No. But that, not at all. <laughs> no, I would not say not at all. I was thinking a lot at the end of that, after walking out of that movie and being amazed by the, again, the the, the clockwork structure of the movie and the plot and everything. Once I was demarveling at that and the visuals and the action pieces, then I was really thinking about how Max was like, it was kind of like Terminator. Um, Max was like John Connor and he, how he like looked at Reese and, and how he had to send a Terminator to save Reese to save himself. That's how I felt like that's what was happening with the protagonist. He was like the Reese character and and Max had to be there to make sure that the protagonist didn't die, but because the protagonist was the one who saved his mother, AKA Sarah Connor. And so I was like thinking all about that, about like, wow, like the little boy grows up and he has to like save his own mother by helping Angier and becoming friends with them and I was and then I was also thinking about the personal struggle of his mother and what she went through and how she felt like this this she was basically she basically felt like she was human trafficked because she was blackmailed into being stuck in her position and I was like again I was doing the homework because it's not all in the movie I was just imagining like that feeling of imprisonment and you can't do anything you can't even be with your kid and, da, 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 da. and then to have her victory and to actually be able to kill him, I was like, dude, that's an amazing moment. And so I did think there's a lot more going on there and people completely gloss over it. Um, and again, you could you could say that's a failing of, of Nolan in style um, in a lot of his movies. But for me, I'm all in, so I get all of it. But my point is, I think all his movies try to have both in every sense. Um, because, um, and I think that's what the duality is, because there is the whole trickery of the machinery of the movie, the structure. But I think he is really trying to talk about the drama as well, because you can't ignore it. Uh, like, just like I couldn't ignore it on this most recent rewatch. Because again, I already marveled at the structure already. I already got that out of my system. I already know the reveal and the trick. And now I was able to like fully appreciate the emotional drama and really focus on the characters. And I felt like it was all there. It's just a lot of times the spectacle does distract you from the drama that is still there. It just distracts you from it. And I could say what I'm saying right now about like all his movies and break them down into the spectacle aspect and then the, the meat and potatoes. Yeah, which is one of the problems I have with Nolan is, again, I... 
may, maybe it's just me coming to the projects hoping that he focuses more on those elements. But this is like what me and Sean... Because I feel like this could be... Oh, This is like ahead. what me and Sean were saying about Barry Lyndon. Like, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous movie, amazingly shot. These look like living portraits. Mm -hmm. The score it just matches so perfectly. And then Sean's like, but, like, the lead especially, of course. But he's like, but... It's like don't all the characters feel so cold or like the way they're the way they're portrayed the way they're acted don't they feel so stilted and how that was a thing that kubrick started having more and more of like in his later movies um and i was telling sean mm -hmm. like i feel the exact same way about shining sean disagreed but i was like yeah look at it i mean aside from the manic moments and everything and i said besides scatman I feel like all the characters are being very deadpan and dry. I have no issues with it, but it's just it's just what Kubrick's <laughs> doing, and he does the same thing with Full Metal Jacket. Oh, I don't know about that one, but that that's why I don't like the. China. Except for the dramatic moments, there's a lot of dry there's a lot of dry acting, and even in Clockwork Orange, um, when there's not something dramatic happening oh. on screen, everyone's just delivering their lines very straightforward, and. I'm fine with it, but I mean, but I guess it's the trickery of Kubrick who makes you think that people are acting more than they are, but they're not. Well, with something like the the a Clockwork Orange, the theatrical element of it makes it less of a realist kind of story. I agree. It, in its own way, is almost surrealist, but not exactly, but in a different realm. <laughs> you bring up surreal, like I bring up Nolan, like in every conversation. <laughs> I, I just mean in terms of discussing a movie that's focused on realism rather than surreality. That, that's why I think I bring it up differently than other people because I don't mean it the same way that necessarily yeah, other people that's do. That's for sure. Um, no, but uh, no, I get what you're saying, but I think... Um... It's a shame, too, because the whole movement of surrealism, I think, moves more in my direction than necessarily people who uh, think of it now. That's I think that's one of the differences. But... So what's weird... <laughs> Uh, this is a whole different conversation, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. just thinking about it in real time. So, I was gonna say, you know, everything Kubrick did 2001 and post, I feel like there's a certain amount of stilted acting by design in all the movies, mm -hmm. 2001 and post. Yep. And then I was like, so what came just before it? You know, Doctor Strangelove. And oh, and I was just thinking about how you use surreal, and I was like, hmm, Doctor Strangelove is like the whole opposite. Everyone's like completely larger than life. Um, and bigger than life. Yep. <laughs> so I was like, that's some kind of weird um, um, Caleb surrealism in that sense, because that's obviously not the real world. Um, it doesn't feel mm -hmm. like a documentary, Dr. Strange Love. Um, but then in a weird way, um, the 2001 and Post have this weird, still, not flat life documentary feel in a way. Um, because it's almost like those old documentaries people of my age used to watch on PBS and the narrator's so deadpan. The African Gazelle. Or the, oh no, the the, the Jacques Cousteau documentaries that uh, Wes Anderson made fun of in Aquatic, Aquatic Life. And, you know, the stoic monkey eats his banana, you know. <laughs> And, and it, that's kind of how all the Kubrick films are, 2001 and later. Everything's so... And I was thinking about Full Metal Jacket and the documentary-ism that's going on in the movie. And everything's just so flat. Even though 
the concepts and the plots are, are larger than life themselves when you think about them. But everything is so just mm -hmm. delivered, so straightforward. Um, whatever. Um, fuck. This movie is brilliant. Um, like, God. Before we watched it, I would have said that this movie was like three and a half, four stars in my mind before we watching it. Now I'm torn between mm -hmm. four and a half and five. And, and do do you think this is among Nolan's best work? It is, but my answer will change or my ranking will change depending on what you mean by best work. Because this is a fantastical film. Soup to nuts. No matter how I want to look at it. Um, like if this movie was an object in front of me that I could turn and look at from different angles and get down low and place it up above me and see how it looks like it, it's a marvelous from every aspect uh, I think that being said um, I couldn't if I was whenever I rank things I always have to say there's my personal feeling and there's if I step outside of my body I say this a lot on best picture show now if I step outside of my body as like an overviewer omniscient omniscient whatever being and I'm just looking at everything in totality there's no way I could say this is an overall greater movie than Dunkirk or Interstellar but it's apples and oranges um, and that's like that's like trying to compare like the Ten Commandments to Maltese Falcon like you know that doesn't work and it really depends on what you're into um, if you know of what you're, which way you're gonna go with those two offerings, and that's how it is, like with Prestige and, and and Dunkirk, because I know some people who would much rather watch Prestige because it's a movie that feels, I guess, more grounded. Whereas Dunkirk, I know a lot of people watch and go, "What the fuck? I don't care. What the fuck was that? Uh, I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care about what any of the characters were doing." And I yep. know people have that. Yeah, I've seen plenty of people. Said Dunkirk so thin in terms of characters. And that is which I agree with. I don't agree with, but I know that's me, and I know that's me doing my homework in my head. Which again, a lot of people feel like that shouldn't be a requirement for a movie. They should feel like everything I need should be there, um, given to me. No, that's not how I feel about Dunkirk, and I know mine's a minority feeling opinion. But when I but when I watch that, just like when I watch other good horror movie horror war movies. I, I get in this meditative state when I watch a movie like that where I transport my consciousness into being in World War II and thinking about how the fuck am I going to get off this beach? How the fuck am I going to get back home? I, I am all in, in my head. So for me, it's extremely powerful. Whereas I watch a movie like, for whatever reason, Sean really likes Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know why. Um, he thinks that's a great war movie, really authentic. That is not how I feel about that movie. Oh, hmm? Gibson, right? That's a Gibson yes. film? Yes. And I was, I'm was, i surprised that Sean has that opinion about that movie. To me, it just feels like a straightforward modern war movie. Um, I mean, it's fine, but I'm not in love with it in any way. And it doesn't... I don't get emotionally wrapped into the characters the way I do with Dunkirk. But I get it. I have a very minority opinion and I'm, I'm, I'm a fanboy for Nolan, so I get it. I'm super biased. Yeah, but, <laughs> absolutely. But no, I get all the emotion of the freaking world. And 
and yeah, but so I can't rank this over those movies, even even this. Okay, this is an easier rewatch for me compared to Dunkirk. Dunkirk is not something I could watch three times in a year, all the way through. I just can't. It's too much, <laughs> uh, and, and I just can't. But this I could probably watch three times in a year easily, if that makes any sense. To rating, because you love to rate things out of, uh... oh shit, <laughs> I had a rating in mind and then I lost it. There's so many things to choose from. Uh, how about uh, red little balls? Oh, little red balls. Little red balls, there you go. Um, I marveled at how they would catch that during the trick or like the top hat when it was tossed across those doors. Yeah, by the way, I love the filmmaking of that when they just show uh, Michael Caine's face during the trick the first time we see it. I thought that was a great moment where he just tosses the ball that we just focus on Michael Caine. I need to watch that again specifically to look out for that. So this... My rating is brought to you by Rotten Tomatoes. There's no affiliation. Um, with the critics, 76%. Ooh, it is the second lowest rated Nolan film on Rotten Tomatoes at 76. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, I don't think it should be in that standing on Rotten Tomatoes uh, no. for his filmography. But anyway, um, audience score 92%. Um, the little blurb here. Full of twists and turns, The Prestige is a dazzling period piece that never stops challenging the audience. Okay, that's a very straightforward um, Little Red Balls. Oh, God, I'm so tired. Okay, I'm going to go with my personal feeling. Um, <laughs> geez, I'm, it's, a fi- it's a five, but <laughs> I'm giving it a five. But I would give a bunch of Nolan films a five. I would have to have like a separate scale where you get into like the microns because even though I'd give a lot of different vibes to Nolan, I don't consider them equal is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Um, it's just their fives though because they're that good, but I'm a fanboy. Um, do you happen to know which movie is the lowest rated uh, film by Nolan on Rotten Tomatoes? I mean, personally, I would guess it is The Dark Knight Rises, but... Huh? Oh, yeah, okay. I heard you saying The Dark Knight. I was like, no way. No, no, no. No, it's actually Interstellar. I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it's in the range of like 72%. So it's still fresh, but that's his lowest, and Prestige is his second lowest. But anyway, um, are you going to rate it? Yep. I was was kind of balancing between a 3.5 and a 4. I think ultimately I'll give it a four, but it it did disappoint me a little bit going back where I thought it was a little bit, it just didn't quite hit where it hit the first time, but it's still just super well done. I think all the performances are top notch. I think the music's great. I think Nolan's kind of grasp on the structure of the movie is great. So it carries me along, even if the emotional weight feels a little bit kind of unfinalized, I think. But I still really love this. Tell me, am I, am I clouded by my fanboyism? Like, is your rating a much more just realistic rating? Is mine 
just boosted because of my fanboys and viewpoint. I don't think either of us represent the general public's take on this movie. <laughs> oh, I agree with that. Um, but I think there's other fanboys, um, Nolan fanboys in particular, who really love this movie now. I think this movie, amongst Nolan fans, especially the younger Nolan fans, meaning the ones who are like your generation, mm -hmm. I feel like this one's hot and trending right now. Oh, interesting. Uh, prestige hmm. amongst, I, I think, I don't have scientific evidence. This is very anecdotal. I feel like this movie's trending amongst the families, especially the younger ones. Um, oh, gosh, I'm so seeing yeah, I, I just feel like if this movie had nailed the tragedy of it all, because it's so wrapped up in fooling you and so wrapped up in kind of pulling off the mystery, that I feel like they missed some of the dramatic weight. And if only they could hit that dramatic weight, it would have been a just great movie in his, uh, amongst his filmography. But it's just, just a really good one, I think. But I think also... Okay. If this is a thought I had watching it for the podcast... If I take myself back and I was and I pretend like I was watching every Nolan release chronologically when they came out at the theater, had I done that, I feel like this guy was on a constant upward trajectory from Memento to mm -hmm. Insomnia to Batman Begins. And if I was me now, but then, and then I saw this movie... I would say this was his best movie to that to that point in his career, um, and I would have said like just the growth is beyond phenomenal. <laughs> Those movies I just named, if you think about them, and I love them all, but the growth in filmmaking from each one to the next, like just take this and uh, and Savia that we talked about. Mm holy shit, this movie to me is leaps and bounds. Like, who is this guy? Like, the guy who made Insomnia? Oh, yeah, promising, promising. Holy shit, two movies later, this guy's on a whole different level as far as I'm concerned. Whole completely different level. Yeah, and I, I still contend that these are his two most complex characters. Like, I don't feel like anyone else goes to this level of darkness. Of all of his movies? Yeah. I don't know. Again, there's the Bruce Wayne thing. Yeah, I don't feel like Bruce is that is delves into the depths of these two characters. I mean, it's hard to like either one of the two yeah, leads. Pose these tough questions. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to really think about them. Well, that's that's one of the ways I define a Hollywood movie. Hollywood always tries to give you super digestible characters, ones that you don't have to really think about too much. Like, oh, this is the lead. This is the villain. That's like the black coat. This is the white coat. This movie, neither one of the leads are really good guys or bad guys. They're both bastards, really. Yes, yes. But, you know, there's other things like that. You know, doing bastards. Which I appreciate. I don't think Nolan really gets into that too much. Like we talked about Insomnia. The lead is a little bit gray, but, I mean, even he kind of by the end is like, oh, don't follow my path. Like, be good and don't make the mistakes I made. So even he, by the end, tries to bathe himself in white. Oh, but again, we have the Nolan trope uh, that I brought up in Insomnia, which was um, like the, the good lie or the lie for the better truth or whatever. 
did you see it in this movie? Um, when I saw it, I thought, oh, that was a good one. That was a good one right there. Um, when Michael Caine's character, Cutter, is like really pissed off at Angier for, uh, I don't know, it was, it was near the end of the movie. And he's really pissed off at him for, oh, I think it was when he was still going to have the machine or something. Something around there. Uh, when Cutter was trying to get the machine back so it could be destroyed or whatever. Yeah, it's when he realized that he was framing Borden for his death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Cutter tells him something like, oh, remember the story I told you about the sailor who almost drowned? Hmm. And he's like, yeah, how it was almost like he was in a dream or whatever. He's like, no, I lied. He said it was terrible, or he said it was whatever he said. I was like, oh my god. Because, you know, he obviously told him that story because of his wife and trying to get over it. That it felt like just going into a dream. When he was like, no, he said it was like, whatever. I can't remember. It was like torture. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, that's harsh. But again, it was the, the little trope of the good lie that no one has. Um, I don't know. I Most of Nolan's movies has to do with daddy issues. Um that's not on display here although they do have daddy issues um but i think with all his movies aside from the things i've already spoke about where he's making a movie for him where he's making a movie yes where he does want the prestige i think this movie is a blueprint for what nolan's trying to do in all his movies mm-hmm. I, I agree with that um but i also think the things he likes to explore have to do with his own autobiographical autobiographical therapy or going over things and I don't know what it all is but there's definitely like I said a thing about daddy issues um, and and he's always like other filmmakers he's trying to suss something out in all his movies also for himself while entertaining the crowd and everything so yeah there's that postmodern aspect of him asking what am i getting out of telling stories what am i trying to achieve as a filmmaker i feel like it's definitely the motivation behind behind these two characters that's the whole point of angier's speech at the end like oh you missed the whole thing like you bored and you didn't get that it's about the audience it's about fooling them and it's about them caring or you carrying them to this sort of end it's it's kind of funny to me that I picked these two out as his best movies, this and Inception, because they're both him talking about what it is to be a storyteller. Oh, absolutely. And I, uh, I don't know, if I was to get his filmography and do like Criterion does and, and have like a suggested viewing order, uh, like if you pretend like it was a Nolan Film Festival and what would you show on day one, etc., <laughs> I would maybe put this one at the front. Oof. Maybe. I was about to say, I definitely wouldn't put this one at the front. <laughs> Why? Why? This the this is the one that I do not feel like would be a crowd pleaser of a movie. Because neither what? of the characters are likable. I think both Again, of them... Again, though, this, this was a well-received movie at the time by the average moviegoer. Um, like what I was saying earlier about the Kubrick stuff. This is a movie that people just walked into, had no idea who made it, and went, oh, dang, that was interesting. Didn't know all that was going to happen. 
but I think very quickly forgotten. Y yes, yes. I don't think that even like, by the fanboys. Yeah, I don't feel like this is one that had much of a cultural impact. Something like Inception had a big impact even to this day. I feel like people still talk no. about it. Okay, it did not have a big cultural impact. You're right, and that's one of the things that people seem to be talking about now, which is why, or it should have, and had more impact. I, I personally think it's because the characters were not easily digestible for a mainstream audience. Like, you watch this, you're like, what? who's the protagonist I'm supposed to like? Both of them are assholes. Both of them ruined... But again, give me some time and I'll think of some other good movies. Or movies that did crack the code that had two unlikable um, leads or whatever. No, I feel, like, I feel like there needs to be some in for the audience. This movie... I feel like the only ins are kind of the female characters, and both of them just kind of get pushed to the side really quickly. I I still think that this is potentially what I might kick off my Nolan Film Festival with. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's fair. Uh, despite because I think people would go, oh yeah, forgot about this one, or they may have skipped over it and never seen it. And again, I would set it up and I'd have a little handout, a little playbill. Or, or I speak to the audience at the beginning of the festival and say, "Here, I want you to look at this, and I want you to think about this movie, and think about the um, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And I want you to keep that in mind, and I want to, I want you to imagine Nolan being some amalgam of these uh, of these partial men, mm. and I want you to think about that as you continue on in this film festival. I think that would be a cool idea." Like, I'd like to sit down one day, and I, why don't I do this? It would take 10 minutes. <laughs> and just write down all the, the Nolan filmography and write what is the uh, what is the pledge, what is the term, what is the prestige. And just, like, do that for all those movies. No, that's, that's an interesting concept. Hmm. Oh, but I definitely enjoyed uh, chatting with you again. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about some more Nolan in the future. Well, I'm always here for that. Jeez. Sure. And yeah, well, see you on the next one. Peace.